The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. And 29 other MLB clubs. 2-2 pitch on Trout, and he blasts one. Way back! Go! It's one out. He's He's your home run derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments, we have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. I hope everybody out there is doing well. Yes, this is A's Cast Live as we're going to be here for you till we start playing baseball. And then once we start playing baseball, we'll get back to our normal routine where we're doing A's Cast Live before every single game, Monday through Friday. And of course, here on A's Cast, powered by TuneIn, just trying to give you some normalcy. Just talking a lot of baseball, talking to a lot of the insiders. And it's, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, to keep this thing rolling and to keep building and to keep growing. Uh, We had our one-year anniversary on Saturday. We owe it all to you, A's fans, who are the most loyal fans there are in sports. There are no question. We absolutely love you and in a lot of ways miss you too. And I know for me, I know for Cody, I know for a lot of A's people, when we still do A's cast live, it gives us a little normalcy. It takes us back to what what, what we're uh, used to doing on a daily basis and talking A's baseball and talking about Major League Baseball. We are going to start today with what could be going on today in college baseball and college sports. We know the draft is going to be different. But with this shutdown and shutting down high school baseball, shutting down college baseball, The NCAA needs to figure out, what are we going to do? Because they were able to shut down college basketball and say, sorry about the tournament, it is what it is. But you got a full season in. You got a full senior year in. That's not what it is for the spring sports. So if you're a senior playing baseball at San Jose State, Stanford, Cal, St. Mary's, Santa Clara, You didn't get a season. You got a little season, but you didn't get a season. And your senior year for most players, it means so much because this is is it. The majority of players who are playing in college baseball don't get drafted, don't get signed. They don't go to independent ball. Your career is over. Something that you've been doing your entire life is now gone. I live that. And it's a tough transition period. Because whether you're a basketball player, you're softball, you're, you're football, you're whatever sport you play in college, your senior year means so much because this is it. Are you going to take that away from these young men and women just because you're worried about your budget? Because their problem is they've set rules that 
This is the amount of scholarships you can have. A lot of these smaller sports, they divide up their scholarships. So one person on the softball team could get tuition and books and money a month. Some may just get tuition. I mean, they they break these scholarships up. And then, of course, what they're going to really be worried about is the big boy in the room, the moneymaker, and that's college football. Because the rules that they're going to come down, and this could be coming down while we're on the show, by the way. This is a historic vote for college sports. Because athletic directors are worried about, I mean, they're not worried, let's be honest. They're not worried about softball and baseball and all these spring sports. They're worried about the big boy, which is college football. And what if this thing gets prolonged and there's not a college football season, which, knock on wood, my God, let's get back to playing as fast as we can. I mean, it's, I, we're, all, we're all on board for safety first, but, you know, we'd like to see our sports back, no question. But let's say there isn't, let's say worst case scenario, there isn't a football season. Do these athletic directors feel, fear about their budget which to me is disgusting that you're going to you're worried about a precedent of, OK, we got to keep all these seniors, but yet we got to bring all these freshmen in, too. And now the scholarships. Now we got over 100 scholarships. This is that that's what they're, they're, are, is this vote today really worried about college baseball? But that's the you know, thing about college baseball. You want your seniors to have a senior year and you want to bring in the new freshmen also. You need to expand. Like we're talking about expanding in Major League Baseball. If we're going to have a shortened season and try and get as many games as possible and start playing doubleheaders multiple times a week, you're going to expand the rosters. And everybody will be good with that. means more guys in Major League Baseball, more guys getting paid, more service time going on. Everybody will be good with that. But to think that because of the almighty dollar, Kids that have worn your uniform, kids that have represented your university with dignity, with class, and hard work, you're going to take their most precious year away, which is your senior year, men and women, because you're worried about your budget going up. This is going to be a day that we are going to remember. Does the NCAA who says they care about kids, which I have never believed. I have been so against the NCAA since I got into college sports. This may be the day that the NCAA has to show they don't care about kids. They don't care about these students. They just care about money. We're going to see. The rules that they have put down throughout the years, Trevor Lawrence Quarterback for Clemson. Guy's a star. Guy's going to be a number one pick in the NFL. Did it go fund me to try and raise money who have been hurt by the coronavirus? And the NCAA shut him down. I'll never forget years ago when they were explaining to us what we can and cannot do as scholarship athletes. Can't have a job. You can't do this. You can't do that. 
That's why I've always laughed at the people that have said, college athletes shouldn't get paid. They get a scholarship. I've always laughed at that. I went, you clearly, and not everybody feels the way I do, and that's fine. But most of these guys, I can tell you, in college football, they have people that help them with their classes. They don't care if these kids graduate. They just want them eligible. They just want, hey, you got to show up on Saturdays. That's all they care about in the SEC and the ACC and the Big Ten and the Pac-12. The Big 12. Make us money on Saturdays and stay eligible. That's all we care about. That's why a lot of these guys don't grad. I mean, you should take it upon yourself to graduate from college. But a lot of these kids, because there's not a minor league system in football, there's not a minor league system in basketball, some of these kids who don't even want to go to college, they're forced to go to college because there's not a minor league system because the NFL and the NBA are cheap. It's not like baseball where you get drafted out of high school and you can immediately become a professional. Same thing in hockey. Are they going to do what's best for these kids, which is, and I don't know how you do it, because let's just say I do graduate, but I want my senior year of baseball. If I'm allowed to have my senior year and I've graduated, do I still have to take classes? I've already graduated. And I'm not looking to get a master's. Do I have to still go to class? So there's a lot of things that they have to figure out today. Some heavy, heavy stuff for, once again, kids who have represented these universities. Dignity, class, hard work. Are you going to throw them out? Or are you going to allow them to finish the most important year of their career? I can't wait to see how this vote goes down. Because some of these athletic directors and the NCAA could go so heartless and say, keep the line moving, sorry, you're out, here comes the freshman class. And our budgets are this, it won't change, tough for you, we'll blame it on the virus, and see you later. Commander Cody, how are you today? You know, I'm I'm living, it's another day, another day of not seeing you in person, so weird. So we're not going to see each other in person again until probably, what, the end of April? So, but uh, other than that, I'm doing, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm monitoring Twitter to see if this uh, vote, anything's coming on the vote. I haven't seen anything yet. Um, TweetDeck is great for that, so I have a lot of stuff open for college football and, and the NFL because usually whatever trickles through the uh, college football goes to the NFL, so I'm waiting to see what happens because this affects, you know, the NFL draft's coming up in, what, 25 days or so, something like that, 27 days, I don't know, somewhere towards the end of April. So it's going to be interesting. I'm with you. I, I want to see how this plays out because are, are you really going to tell the uh, senior senior who wants to come back and play that he can't? And, you know, I feel, I'm with you. I feel bad for the high school senior that didn't get to have their baseball season or tennis or whatever sport in the spring they play. Yeah, you know, I was just talking college. Think about kids who are not good enough to play college ball or get drafted. This, as an 18-year-old, this is your last time you're going to play baseball. You're not coming back. They're, they're, they're already saying, you're going to graduate. You're out of here. So as a high school baseball player who is not going to move on, this is your last shot at playing the game you love. 
And uh, I feel bad. And you know, you know where a lot of people may end up going, and a boost may be for junior colleges, because if they're having less rounds in the draft, now I I gotta think, and maybe maybe we should bring on Brad Sanfilippo, the head coach of San Jose State, who also used to coach at Cal. Bring him on to say, okay, from a recruiting standpoint. You probably have an idea of the guys you're going to offer scholarships and probably have already offered them scholarships. The kid that I worry about is the kid that starts to grow into his body, get stronger as an 18-year-old, and starts to dominate his senior year. Next you know, he's now all league, and he's this, and he's that. And now colleges look at this guy and go, God, this guy's blossomed. We want this guy. That guy's going to be hurt big time. And, and and for men and women, you know, you think of all the different spring sports in high school as men and women uh, are getting stronger as they're 18 years old and they're seniors and college is looking at them. Now they don't get to showcase that full season. I think a lot of these people, if they want to continue playing, I think there's going to be a boost in junior college sports because guys are going to, I, I just, just from a baseball standpoint, I think of – I'm just reading a text that you sent me. So it's weird. I'm looking at you on my computer screen, and you're texting me at the same time. Well, I don't want to just jump in and say, hey, check your phone. So that's why I was waiting to see if your phone vibrates. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just a live read for you to do. I didn't get a chance to explain it to you, so I wanted to make sure I got it in to make sure we did it. But I'm with you 100% about kids growing into their bodies because, you know, as a kid that played high school baseball, and I wasn't going on to play – college baseball anywhere I mean I was an okay player I wasn't great I was better I was a better soccer player believe it or not I had a few looks and colleges wanted me for soccer over anything if you believe that this body was a soccer player 12 years ago or no I, I don't believe that 13 years I, I ago need proof I need yeah, proof I, I have the pictures I can pull them I, next that's time body we, not built that's a body not built for running <laughs> when when we you know when we get back together you know whenever we're allowed to hang out again I'll, I'll bring the pictures over and we can I'll share but I'm with you. I feel bad for the, the high school seniors more than most because, the, you know, the kids that aren't moving on for, you know, say their team has a chance to – that's my alarm, sorry – to have a chance to, you know, maybe win a state title. And that's all – you know, that would be like one of the greatest highlights of their lives. They're not going to have a chance to do that. One of the things that we saw in the Sporting News, Commander, that I thought was great was best uniforms of all time or ranking the 30 teams, for, excuse me, not all time, ranking the, the the 30 teams for the 2020 season. And I was surprised. Were you surprised by the list? Some of it, yes. Um, was I surprised at who number one was? Not really. Maybe a little. I mean, they have great uniforms, don't get me wrong. But there's so many legacy uniforms, I think, that pe- I thought people would rank higher just because of that. Uh the Indians being dead last is a little odd. Uh, I do like their red uniforms, but that that one was a little odd. But, you know, I'll let you go through the list, and then I can chime in and tell you if I agree or disagree where they're ranked. I was shocked that the Indians were 30th, and a team that I was just in their team store. When I was in Philadelphia, after we went and did the uh, Gino and Pat challenge, Pats, for the <laughs> cheesesteaks, we, we then went over to where – so in Philadelphia, there is – whatever part of Philly it is. I was in an Uber, so I couldn't even tell you exactly where – what part on the map it is. I guess I could look that up. But they have the baseball stadium, the football stadium, and the arena 
they're all across the street from each other. And they've built up Philly Live like Texas Live, where you have this facility that has restaurants, bars. Essentially, that's where you go before the games. It's genius. It's absolutely genius. Like, you don't need to tailgate. You can go into this. They've got live music. They've got it, – it's, it, it's, it's awesome. So I went into the Phillies team store. The Phillies team store is huge. And I'm like, they've got – like, if I was a Phillies fan, there's no question I would own a old-school, light blue, retro Mike Schmidt jersey. There's no question. Mike Schmidt is the greatest third baseman of all time, in my opinion. I'm like, and they've got the Phillies on here. So they got the Indians as 30th, which I don't believe. They got the Phillies as 29th. And then the team at 28 should be 30th because their look is awful. The Arizona Diamondbacks. I mean, when I turn on television sometime and I see the Diamondbacks, I'm like, this is rough. Whoever overthought this uniform. 27th is the Marlins. They've got a horrible look. Their Miami Vice theme it's so bad. The the Heat actually do the the best job with the Miami Vice stuff. If you ever look at the Miami Heat's like alternate jerseys, they they do the Miami Vice one right. I'm looking at the Marlins one. I have not one. watched the Miami Heat since LeBron James left. Are you kidding me? Why would you even check out the Miami Heat? Well, I mean, they, they, they stuff's all over social media when they when they're wearing those Miami Vice uniforms. But looking at this Miami Marlins one, yeah, they're not they're not very oh, it's good. Bad. I mean, the old Marlins uniforms are better in my opinion. Well, from like the 90s and 2000s. So it's black, Miami pink, and teal. That's the trim and the outlines of the uniform. Ugh, I, 26 is the White Sox. I mean, the White Sox uniform is pretty much black and white. I, I, I think that – I don't necessarily agree with that, and I think this is so off. They've got the Detroit Tigers with one of the most classic uniforms in all of sports, the old English D. They got them, Cody, at 25, which I thought, that's a joke. I thought they should have been much higher. That's, again, that's a legacy one for me. Like, that's a, you know, when you first get into baseball, you know about the Yankees, the Tigers, you know about some of the teams. The Tigers were one of the first teams I knew about. They should be a lot higher. Their uniforms are, are very popular, and I'm really surprised 25th. But as the author of this article put out, you're not going to agree with everything. And, uh, well, we're already disagreeing on a lot of the stuff that's on here. So I mean, the Nationals are red, white, and blue. I mean, you got the Nationals at 24th. And how about also one of the most classic uniforms, the Orioles at 23? I mean, the Orioles uniform is phenomenal. I, it's just I, I, I don't get it. So Rockies are, are 22nd. The Rays, which to me is just bland, they're 21st. They have the Cardinals at 20th. How do you have Detroit, Baltimore, and St. Louis, these classic uniforms in Major League Baseball, not higher? I just, it's crazy. Rangers are 19th. Braves are 18th. I, I, I do not like the San Francisco Giants. What do we call that? Vanilla? What, what, what do they call that off white home jersey? I just, I, I've, Jeff Kent hated it, if you remember back. Jeff Kent was like, we're wearing these? It uh, looks like they call it cream, cream-colored. I That's terrible. 
Uh, Cincinnati Reds, another classic uniform, comes in at just 16th. The Angels are 15th. I mean, they're basically white and red. They have the Astros at four. The Astros should be at the bottom. I do. I mean, the Astros to me is not that orange with a little blue. Uh, they got the Blue Jays at 13th, the Pirates at 12th. By the way, your Buckos, Cody, the late 70s, and I'll never forget, I can't remember what year it was. It was like 2009 or 2010 when the A's played the Pirates at home and the Pirates went to their old school and the A's wore all gold. It was head-to-toe gold. It was jersey. It was pants. That was one of the great uniform games in the history of baseball. Old-school A's, old-school Pirates, interleague play. I think it was on a Saturday. Monty Moore, and I'd have to ask Fossey this, Monty Moore was in the booth with them. And I want to say Kurt Suzuki, he, he, brought his, he brought the bell, the dinger home run bell. And I want to say Kurt Suzuki had a home run and Monty Moore was ringing the bell on the TV broadcast. Oh, it was one of the great games of all time. The, the Pirates actually wore those, you know, the 79 uniforms. They wear them, I think, every Sunday home game is what they do. So they still make them popular. And now they brought back oh. the, the 94 uniform, as I think is one of their alternates. And they have the new font. I actually really like their new uniforms. Because the team's not going to be very good, but at least they're going to look cool on the field. Oh, the pipe, the hat with the piping makes yeah. you think of Willie Stargell and Dave Parker, Bill Madlock, Kentucky. Yeah, there it is. Uh, Mets at 11. Okay. Red Sox are 10th. Now, you notice we haven't said anything about the A's yet. Mariners are 9th. Twins, 8th. Cubbies, 7th. Dodgers are 6th. I thought the Dodgers would be higher. Yankees, the pinstripes, the most famous uniform basically in all of sports, is fifth. Royals, fourth. Still haven't mentioned the A's, by the way. Number three, I'm shocked by. People thought the Padres' brown and gold uniforms throughout the years were hideous. Now, all of a sudden, the Padres' unis are like the chic uniform in sports. Are you shocked? I'm shocked. Are you shocked the Padres are third? Yes. Uh, I like the brown. I think it's cool. I used to like the – remember when they did the camo uniforms too? I thought the camo uniforms were really cool when they, when yeah, they rolled they did, those they, out. They, they did that on Sunday for uh, military day. I thought – I really like those. Like I said, the brown is back is, is cool. Like I, I like the retro look, but three is a bit high for that, for, especially for a team. Like if you just want to go off of a team that – You're going to take the Padre uniform over the New York Yankees? Come on. Yeah, even That's me, ridiculous. even I wouldn't do that. I, I think the Padres need to be a little bit lower, uh, much I mean, lower, actually. The Yankee uniform is the most, I mean, other than, what, the Cowboy? It'd be, if you had to, like, put the uniform up to people around the world and they know who that is, out of American sports, if you went around the world, for me, it'd either be the Yankee uniform or the Cowboys uniform. Oh, 100%. I think the Yankees is the most identifiable, you know, logo in, in sports around the world. I mean, I think the Jordan brand logo is pretty popular, too, but that's just a brand. But I think the Yankee logo is number one. And if you have to go with the NFL, I'd go Dallas. I think the, the Steelers have a really, you know, they have a, a good following, and I think a lot of people know them, but i I definitely go Dallas for the NFL. Then the Yankees will be number one. Number two on this list, and I do like this. I, I do like the change that they've gone to, the Milwaukee Brewers. They're now sporting four different uniforms, a home white, 
a home white with pinstripes, a road blue with gray pants, and a road all gray traditional. Very nice. Number one. First, we have to start with the color scheme. There's just something inherently fun, pretty, and iconic about the athletics green, white, and gold colors. They're truly unique, especially in sports, that is so used to traditional red, white, and blue color combinations that virtually every other team has. Then we have the alternate uniforms, things that can get a little bit dicey with alternate uniforms in baseball, but not with the A's. Their Kelly Green alternates with white lettering and gold trim is one of the best alts in baseball. Together, it's a wonderful set of uniforms that captures the team's identity, all while using a unique set of colors. Ranking number one, 2020 baseball uniforms, your Oakland Athletics. I And I don't know what happened to it. I, I own one, the gold jerseys. I love the gold jerseys. I think they're awesome. I would like to see those come back. Yeah, but the Kelly Green, I mean, the A's, they, they did a, uh, on Twitter, what is that hashtag, Cody, about the 70s? Sports in the 70s? Oh, um, let, me, let me see if I can find it. So whatever that ha- it's it's about sports in the seventies and these guys, whoever runs it has they have like over three hundred thousand Twitter followers and said you know who who is your first favorite baseball player and whoever is running this Twitter account put up a photo of Reggie Jackson in the all gold A's uniforms in the seventies it's such a good look it is such a good look. But how about that? Sporting News is rating the A's 2020 uniform as the number one in baseball. Now, one of the fun things that's going on right now is that Baseball Reference is running a simulated season right now. So they're kind of like projecting what the season would be like. Where do your Oakland A's stand? How do the Oakland A's start the 2020 season according to baseball reference. Right now, the Oakland... No, save it, save it. Okay. That's the tease. That's the tease. And one player... Well, I'm going to say this. One player is continuing where he left off last year, and another player is making a rebound. This is according to baseball reference... They're simulating all the games on the schedule right now. The A's are eight games in. Are you going to like their start? Are you going to be like, Ugh. Are you going to be worried how they start? Are you going to be happy about how they start? And one player picks up where he left off last year, and another guy's making a rebound. So how do the A's have a day off on a Friday? Remember, we had a couple weird off days on Friday last year, too. But remember, the season was started to first Ford home versus Minnesota, then three against Houston, and then fly to Minnesota, play a game, and then an off day Friday. It's very odd. By the way, every single day now, all the different notifications, you know, because 
whether it's MLB or whether it's my calendar on my phone or CBS or ESPN, you know, they send you the game today at 7.05. It's the eight. You know, you get those up. I, I, I cry every day when it shows up. Do you get those? Uh, I don't. Is that That's from the MLB at bat app, right? Is that where you're getting it from? Well, yeah, it's, a, it's on the at bat app, but then also my calendar on my phone has every single game and sends me a notification right before first pitch. I think CBS Sports. So I'll get like – I'll get like three or four going, hey, it's the like A's and the Astros. And I go, oh, God. <laughs> why can't I have my baseball? All right. So baseball reference is simulating the season right now. Your Oakland Athletics are tied for first at seven and one. They swept the Twinkies. They swept the Cheaters. And then they go on the road, and they lost their first game in Minnesota. But the A's are 7-1 and one through their first eight games. Marcus Simeon is on fire. Marcus Simeon has five home runs through the first eight games and six RBIs leading the big leagues. Great news. Chris Davis has two home runs. Liam Hendricks has three saves. Once again, baseball reference is simulating the season. Jesus Lazardo's 1-0 on the year. Frankie Montas is 1-1. But how about the start? Marcus Simeon. You may want to put some money on Marcus Simeon being the MVP. <laughs> if this is how it's going to go. Five home runs for the eight. What's he on pace for? Okay, so looking at his Over stats. Over eight home runs? Yeah, that's pretty high. Through So through eight games, Marcus has five home runs. He has a 267 average, meh. But his batting, his OPS is 1,171 through the first eight games of the year. Now, Nolan Arenado and Justin Upton each hit a home run today uh, on their simulation. So they now have five as well. But Marcus still has five homers, six RBIs, and an OPS of over 1,000 on the season. That's higher than both Arenado and Justin Upton. All right, give me, give me, uh, give me the standings. So the standings right now. You want me to go division by division, or just do the AL West? We'll start AL West. AL West. The A's are tied at the top of the division with, yes, the same team that started hot last year, thirteen and two. The also seven and one Seattle Mariners up in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, last in the division, the Houston Astros at two and six. Oh God, oh, that'd be just, be just that'd be so great. <laughs> Well, remember they got swept by the A's, so there's there's three right there. I haven't got I haven't got a chance to go through their schedule and see who else they lost to, but you figure they if lost. The Astros, if the Astros do take a dive this year, it might be one of the most. Um, how do I want to put this? I, I before I say it, I want to I want to censor myself. Um, but uh, karma's a you know what. Yeah. Oh, we got to and we got to talk about. Uh, a former Astro who was ripping Mike Fires uh, did a podcast on the Athletic and changed his tune really quick. Yeah. By the way, the Astros won their first two games of the year against the Angels in Anaheim. Not surprised. And then they lost the next six in a row. Three to the they lost uh, to the last two to the Angels and then uh, three to the A's. And then they lost at Anaheim again. So you know, I mentioned. I don't I don't remember which day. But I mentioned, you know, 
when 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 you have crisis like we have right now, people like to bond together. We like to be a nicer, gentler community, and that could that could help the Astros. Um, I think I'm wrong on that. Yeah, there's been some stuff that's come out on the Astros, and you see the venom is still there. So when we get back to playing, they're not going to be treated with kid kid gloves. I don't think. I think the 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 anger of fan bases because we're going to get into this a story that's circulating right now, and uh, and well, I'll talk to everybody about because Jared Diamond from the Wall Street Journal, national baseball columnist, uh, you see him on MLB Network. He's come out with a new book. He's gone after him again. Uh, we'll talk about that in, in, in just moments, and but I don't think I don't I don't think um, I don't think they're going to get the pass that we thought they were going to get. Well, no, we saw the story yesterday too about Jeff Luno and AJ Hinch and their suspensions and all that. It's just yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get yeah. To the there's we'll a, there's to just a lot of stuff going on with the Astros, and you're right. I don't think people are gonna that this is going to be one of those things like oh yeah hey the, so what did they do oh that's forgotten no 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 that's it's still no. going to be there. <laughs> And the commissioner may want it to go away. It ain't going away. Coronavirus or not, it's not going away. But those, uh, by the way, those uh, simulated standings, we, we didn't mention who the best team in the National League was. And that'd be, yes, Don Mattingly's Miami Marlins are 7-1. and one. Donnie Baseball, is he playing? Donnie Baseball leading the Marlins to a playoff berth as of right now. They, we could see – could we see an what the, A's? What, what, what are the Dodgers? The Dodgers right now are – wow, they're in, they're tied for second in the division with the Giants at four and three. Mike Farron's Diamondbacks are leading the division at five and three. The Snakes? Yeah. Madison Bumgarner? Can you guess who's in last place? Who would you say who's, – who was tied for second with the Dodgers? The, the Giants. Oh. Are you going to tell me the uh, – oh, it's got to be the rock pile. It's Well, they're tied. They're both three and five. But at the bottom of the standings are Bob Townsend's San Diego Padres. Don't crush my brother like that. Uh, by the way, tied for second in the NL Central, my beloved Pirates are sitting there with three other teams at uh, – two other teams, sorry, at four and three. The Reds well, the, are last, three and four. The, the division that a lot of people are interested in is the NL East. There's, it's a competitive division. What's that looking like right out of the gate? Uh, every team but the Marlins under 500. Uh, Marlins seven and one. Nats and Mets three and four. Braves three and five. Phillies two and six. So no, oh, there's panic. There's panic in Philly. Ph Phillies panic. Did we let go of Gabe Kapler too soon? Oh, there's panic in Philly. Uh, what, what's what's the AL East? The AL East. Let's pull that up. Uh, the Yankees are five and two. Uh, Garrett Cole not pitching well in the season. I look, he has an ERA over eight in two starts on the year. Oh, that's uh, panic. Uh, the, the Rays are four and three, and then the Blue Jays and Red Sox are three and five, and then the Orioles, still rebuilding, are two and five. How about the Twinkies in the Central? Uh, they are two and six after being swept Ooh. by the A's. And they lost the first game of the uh, – yeah, yeah, they, they would have lost the, – well, they won their first game of their home opener. But they got swept by the A's in Oakland, so that's four there. But in last place, yes, the Detroit Tigers one and six. But the Chicago White Sox are five and two to lead the division. Wow, the they you know they came into the season as the darlings. Is Jared calling us? Or are we calling in? Yeah, Jared's calling into us, so I'm waiting for him to call in. Okay. I like that they're doing this, the simulated season. I I, I hate when people go, oh, I, I did it on Madden. I like that baseball reference is doing it. Do, do they do they do they explain? 
They're using uh, what, the theory around it or what they're doing and how they're doing it. They're using out of the park baseball, which is like a simulation game to simulate the season and the statistics. And I mean, I've never used out of the park baseball because I play MLB the show. And, you know, I, I like I said, I told you I did a simulated season on MLB the show and the A's ended up making the wild card game and unfortunately ended up losing in the wild card game. But it was like yeah. it, it was, this, you know, I'm, I'm playing one right right now. And it's it's completely like the Braves are the last team in the NL East. It's It's crazy. Thank you so much for coming on the program. We truly appreciate it. And your book is coming out in April. You got to be super excited. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I mean, it also could be good timing, but I just feel like sports books in general are a little more uh, a part of the discussion now than they may have been when the games are actually going on themselves. Uh, but also just excited to get the get the content out there. It's a lot of things that Eric and I have been writing about for a long time, and we finally got them all in the same place. Future value, the battle for baseball's soul and how teams will find the next superstar. Talk to us about, I mean, obviously, analytics, scouting, how baseball is changing like every single day. I talked to Stan Kasten, the uh, president, part owner of the Dodgers down in spring training, and he mentioned, he goes, if you're out of the game just a year or two years, the game passes you by so fast. Talk about your book and, and, and why we should be reading it. Yeah, the I guess the genesis of it is, like, I was a senior in high school when Moneyball came out 15 years ago, and that sort of put me on the path of, I want to work in sports, too. I want to work in baseball. Because I'm, I'm a guy that, you know, I didn't get a Harvard. I didn't get a law degree. My dad didn't do anything. I didn't play anywhere. Like, I had no background to sort of earn one of these spots in the way that they're typically um, earned. Uh, and when Moneyball came out, all the scouts, who I didn't know at the time, but now I'm talking to them, they were scared they were going to get replaced by numbers and analysts and things like that because that's sort of what the book was pushing forward. But at that point, the analytics that teams had to possibly replace scouts, it would be like replacing your scout that watches high school and college games by we have on-base percentage and walks. It's like, well, we already had that. Like it, the, the stuff that a scout could see with their eyes was so much more useful, especially at the amateur and lower levels, that it, it, actually there were more scouts hired because I remember I, I talked to an analyst with a team at that point um, who was skeptical of the use of scouts, that they were snake oil salesmen, which there is a little bit of that in scouting, but not as much as this guy thought. And he said the number on the top of the scouting report about how good the player is is the single most predictive number there is in the draft. Like, you can't really work around it. So that was 15 years ago when people were worried. There was really nothing to be worried about. Now, in the last five to seven years, with all of the radar-based technology around um, TrackMan, StatCast, soon to be Hawkeye, you have all these different bat sensors that are Bluetooth and Rapsodo and things like that, Teams that are inclined to want to reduce their scouting force, people that thought that uh, that scouts are snake oil salesmen or that they aren't as useful as you think or that the gut feels and things are just sort of nonsense, which is an opinion some people hold, they now have the data to justify getting rid of those guys. And so that's sort of the crux of what we're uh, covering in the book. And there's all kinds of different areas in baseball that are affected by what is now happening as a result of that. Yeah, it's pretty crazy all the data that we have on, on young players, and I'm not talking college guys, I mean high school guys, because of the showcases and all the tournaments, let alone all the all the games that they play during the high school season, but all the tournaments and all the stuff they do in non-regular season. Wouldn't you say it's pretty crazy the amount, the amount of just straight information we have, numbers on these players that they never had before? 
Yeah, and even in the, I mean, obviously I think a lot of fans are aware of, you can see all of the StatCast numbers immediately on Twitter or on a broadcast as the game is happening, and you get that there's so much money at the big league level that that, that sort of thing will be available. I think a lot of fans, not all of them, are aware that this is available at essentially every minor league game, but it is proprietary to the team. They pay for it to get installed. They own it, whereas at the big league stadiums, MLB owns it, which is why you get to see it as like a consumer-facing thing. What not many people know is it is at 70, uh, roughly 70 colleges have TrackMan, and almost the entire SEC and most of the ACC has it. And they also have it at some of these complexes where they hold high school showcases and travel ball tournaments over the summers. And a couple of high school fields have it, too, some of the really high-end you know, private high schools that have tons of resources. And so now it's getting to a point where uh, kids could be as early as eighth grade or ninth grade committing to SEC colleges and having this data collected on them by colleges, recruiting agencies, uh, all these different showcase companies. And then all the teams are getting it. And once they get to 16 or 17, they start differentiating themselves. Some of them are getting stronger and faster and separating. This is just the beginning of a you know, 30-year career, possibly, with data from every step of it, every game they played, potentially, could be you know, poked and prodded. And, and you can you know, almost say, like, hey, he was working on a swing change here. And we know it changed because his exit be was jumped when he was 14 years old uh, right at this game on this swing, uh, which obviously that didn't exist for any players 10 years ago. And now it's on everybody. Yeah, I thought it was insane when my buddy was talking about how you can follow Little League games. The person keeping score, it goes into the app, and you can follow your kid's Little League game if you can't be there. And I'm like, oh, this is amazing. No one could ever think that you could follow anybody's Little League game. So technology has changed, and I know that people in the big leagues have not enjoyed when I have said this, but the reality is – College baseball was ahead of Major League Baseball and ahead of most teams when it comes to technology and when it comes to especially technology with pitching. If you look at the Vanderbilts of the world, they were far ahead of Major League Baseball, and that's crazy to think. Yeah, I would say Vanderbilt, uh, Arkansas, Wake Forest, there's a handful of colleges, and they're all in the SEC and ACC, uh, except maybe Dallas Baptist is probably the big example of a non-sort of revenue team that has figured this out, um, where their ability to have uh, every part of every practice, every recruiting camp, everything measured, and all the way down to, like, North Carolina um, has an app that they give to all of their players that was developed by their student assistants, where they record every workout, everything they eat, all of their throwing programs, everything is on there uh, just for their pitchers uh, and hitters as well, but primarily uh, geared toward pitchers. And you'll see guys, you know, be in high school at a top high school program, play for a top travel ball team, and then they show up to Vanderbilt, and Vanderbilt is doing stuff that many professional teams don't really know how to do. Like when it comes to like, you know, changing a changeup to get like more or less spin efficiency so it sinks more and then it has the same spin deflection as your fastball, professional teams are aware of these things. Like everyone on the field knows these terms and knows the general idea, and they may land on a similar answer in terms of grips and usage and sequencing with just their eyeballs. But the efficiency with which you can do it um, using all of this data is sort of unprecedented. And the, specifically the pitching coaches at these top college programs, they are going all the way from recruiting 13-year-olds to having 23-year-old seniors to having current big leaguers that used to go to that college that are 30 coming back in the uh, offseason. 
and they are doing everything from the recruiting to the development to the fine-tuning to the game plan to the pitch calling. Like, they're doing every part of it. And so if you're looking for a big league pitching coach or a pitching coordinator to run your minor leagues, like the sort of lab where these guys are getting better at this and learning the skills they need to do these important jobs, it's in college. Where being a double-A pitching coach, you have very little power over what's going on. It's a lot of top-down stuff. Well, and one of the things that I find really fascinating that they have in college that they don't have at the big league level is all these colleges have hospitals. All these colleges have uh, pre-med students that, that, that want to get into sports medicine, that they're working with trying to protect pitchers and players. As you mentioned, North Carolina with the app, you know. Baseball teams have their doctors, but it's interesting the relationship that these sports teams and colleges have with them with their medical centers. Yeah, there's uh, there is an amount of uh, sort of young, hungry, uh, usually unpaid labor that wants to do work for you. And then the other part of it is uh, there's so many like if you're on a campus with 30,000 students. And they're there in part because of the sports program, because, uh, you know, you see uh, applications to these colleges spike when the football or the baseball or the basketball team is very successful. Like, obviously, the programs are part of the reason people are there. If you are like a flagship program at your school, like Arkansas is a baseball school. And so if people are going there in part because of the sports, baseball is the big sport. Everybody wants to be the next Billy Bean or Theo Epstein. I mean, you could have dozens and dozens of kids on campus at any given time. That'll just work for credit. That'll do whatever you need. You, like you're saying, you have like sort of the research and the and the medical part of it, um, and then you also have like the um, the feedback loop and the incentives for college coaches. There are coaches in the SEC, head coaches making a million dollars. There are uh, assistants making five hundred thousand dollars, and they're largely on one and two and maybe three year deals. And if you make a regional and lose the regional and the like, sort of the first round of the playoffs for people that aren't familiar with college baseball, guys get fired from big programs for doing that. And so winning a handful of extra games, just getting to the super regional, maybe making it to Omaha once out of those three years in your contract, you get renewed. That could be five million dollars. Like the incentives are huge to get those little marginal advantages. And so the colleges went from not knowing how this stuff worked 10 years ago to many colleges are ahead of many pro teams because the incentives incentives are lined up in such a way that they need to be there. You know, one of the big questions going into this season, whenever we get it started, is what's the baseball going to be like? Because already in spring training earlier this year, you know, the players know. I mean, they're the ones that throw it, catch it, hit it. They're saying already in spring training the ball is different from last year. People believe the ball was different from last season to last season's postseason. Are we going to have a juice ball? How much do you think about that when we're going to judge players going into 2020? Do you go, what kind of baseball are we going to have? Yeah, I mean, from, from a scouting perspective, obviously everyone will be using whatever ball we end up with. And maybe from a fantasy perspective, uh, you know, you know to invest more in hitting if there's going to be a jumpy ball and a bunch of home runs. Maybe spend a little less on pitching if everyone's going to get batted around. Um, but all the ind- different indications from MLB, from sort of the official channels, is that they were aware that the ball was an issue. Uh, there was some debate over when they said, we think everything is, you know, MLB said they think that all the variation between the ball from year to year was within the error bar, which seemed to, doesn't seem to add up. But you could you could really you know sort of fold yourself into a pretzel and sort of see their point of view and think that there was nothing screwy going on. It was just a weird outlier of a season of balls being a little out of their control in a way that was unusual. 
uh, it seems like they're aware of it and have wrapped their arms around it and will sort of dial it in some. I, I think of it almost like the Coors Field effect where it was completely changing the way we played baseball for years. Then they introduced the humidor, the pitchers got a little more used to it, and now it's just, you know, probably the most extreme environment. But any given season, it might not be the number one most extreme environment in baseball. It's just one of them. And I think the ball went a little out of pocket last year to where it was changing the game a bit. And I think now it's going to come to where it is, you know, a little jumpier than usual. It'll be an offensive era, but it's not going to completely change the game because I don't think that's an MLB's interest. Yeah, I've never heard of any league. It doesn't matter whether it's baseball, football, basketball, or NHL, where they said, you know what, less less offense is a good thing. Yeah, pe- people like to see scoring. The the players that are famous are famous because of scoring, not because of defense. Even like I feel defensive players uh, in the NFL, it's you know the guys that catch you know get the interceptions and score the touchdowns and return the kicks. And even in baseball, like you know Garrett Cole is you know one of the more famous guys on sort of the defensive end of things. But you know getting a strikeout, striking a guy out at 100 miles an hour is sort of an offensive thing. Like you're kind of coming after the guy. Whereas the guy catching the ball, he's not usually a star just for catching the ball. So, yeah, I think I think across all sports that uh, that generally holds that more offense is better as long as it doesn't get so out of whack that it changes the game. And I think we were bordering on that last year. Yeah, and there are even thoughts that the way they're making bats now, that bats don't break like they used to. And, and that, you know, it was uh, one of our – somebody in our organization, I'm not going to admit, he goes, hey, talk about juice ball, talk about the juice bats. The bats are even different these days. Yeah, and I know when I was uh, at Fangraphs and we were writing uh, with Eric Long and Hagen about Nick Madrigal, the first-round pick and top prospect of the White Sox, uh, the report on him as an amateur was similar to the report of Jose Altuve, Mookie Betts, Justin Troya, where it is smallish guy, he can play second base, he can really hit, and he's got just enough power but not really that much. And then all of those other guys, when they got to the big leagues, they figured it out. And even more in recent years, these little guys, particularly second basemen, are now becoming like 30 home run threats. Like Francisco Lindor, nobody thought that was going to happen when you watched him as a 17, 18-year-old when he was drafted in the first round. But that sort of became an option as a result of like new swing mechanics, new bats, new balls, you know, different sort of strength training methods. Like all of these things have added up to that to where guys that can really hit that have a feel for the bat head and are just sort of athletes and physical and can make adjustments uh, for a while you know, last year. You would just see a guy like that in college or high school, and the scouts would just be like, well, anyone can hit home runs now. This guy's good at everything else. I imagine he'll figure out the power, and I wonder if that will be the case going forward. Hey, thank you so much for the time. We truly appreciate it. I I, I subscribe to ESPN Insider, and uh, I look forward to all your deep dives into the baseball season. Hopefully we get it going soon. But thank you for coming on. Stay safe, and we'd love to have you back soon. Yep, thanks for having me. we got a lot of stuff planned over at uh, ESPN+. And even if there's not games, we've got uh, a couple of pretty ambitious ideas to uh, cover everything uh, up until when these games get started. Drew, thank you so much for taking the time. We truly appreciate you coming on A's Cast Live. Oh, you bet, man. Good to join you guys. So when, when I think about the Colorado Rockies, so what we're doing here as our president wanted to get us back on the air and talking to our fans is we decided is we're going to break down every single team until we start playing again. And we started with the National League West. So we've already done the Diamondbacks. We've done the Giants. We've done the Padres. And now today we're doing the Colorado Rockies. And really surprising for me uh, under Buddy Black, where the team makes the playoffs two straight years and then really falls off last year. What are you looking at expectation-wise once we start playing again, what the Rockies will look like in 2020? 
Well, uh, you know, hopefully they look a lot more like they did two years ago, and as you mentioned, three years ago. Um, last year they really they struggled uh, on the hill, which, generally speaking, when you struggle, um, that's what uh, that's what's going where it's going to take place. Uh, Kyle Freeland a year ago um, went from uh, a guy who was fourth in the National League in the Cy Young Award to having to go back. Uh, to AAA for a while, so you need a bounce back year from him uh, to begin with. The top of the rotation with Herman Marquez and and John Gray, um, it, it's really solid. I mean, Marquez has a chance to be elite, and then at the back of the rotation, they have they have a couple of arms they like. It, they don't have a lot of depth, so for the Rockies to return to again where they were in 2018, they need a couple of good stories and good health naturally. Uh, in that rotation. But in terms of position players, they're going to put out a pretty good lineup uh, on a day-in and day-out uh, basis. You know, getting ready for this interview and researching the Rockies, I, one thing that really shocked me, you know, summertime's beautiful in Colorado and really in the National League West, pretty much everywhere you go, it's beautiful other than Arizona because it's really hot. But, wow, did the Rockies really struggle in July and August going 6-19, and 9-19, and 19, and the stat that I just can't get over, zero road series wins for the Rockies after July 1st. Have you ever seen anything like that in your career? Well, historically, the Rockies have struggled on the road. It's, um, it's one of those uh, situations where people, when they glance at the Rockies and they always you know, notice some of the glowing offensive stats, and, and they always dismiss it, well, it's Coors Field. It's a great place to hit. They're hitting at altitude. What is rarely spoken about is that the these guys have to make constant adjustments, um, not only physically because they're going from altitude to sea level and back and forth, but also with ball movement. So that's why the road numbers for Colorado typically have not been good and stand in large contrast to what they're able to do at home. Um, the previous two years, they were a really good road team. In fact, uh, they won 44 games on the road um, in 2018, which is a, a, a high watermark for the franchise. So, uh, yeah, it, basically everything that could go wrong last year went wrong for the Rockies, and that's you know that's why they went from a you know a 91 win team and playing a game 163 to capture the division in LA uh, in 2018 to just winning 71 games last year. I'm glad you bring up the altitude because I also work in football. I work for the Raiders. So we, we come up there every single year to take on the Broncos. And I don't think a lot of people really understand how hard it is to play in altitude, to stay healthy in altitude. So when you think Larry Walker, you think Todd Helton, and now Nolan Arenado, who is such a special player, to, 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 to play every single day in Colorado and for the Rockies is really far different than all the other 29 other teams. Talk about the whole altitude factor because it's different for these players. Uh, there's no there's no question, and it, uh, I'll be honest, it frustrates me as a broadcaster when uh, people are just lazy um, when they assess what players have done uh, with the Rockies offensively. And, you know, they again, they always dismiss it as, uh, or the, with the caveat of, well, he did it at Coors Field, he did it at altitude. And there's so many examples of, you know, great Rockies hitters who went on 
to other cities, and guess what? They were still really good offensive players. I mean, look at D.J. LeMayhew. You know, some people will say, oh, he was a quarter field creation. Well, he goes to Yankee Stadium, he hits 26 home runs, and he was, uh, you know, top five in the American League in, in MVP balloting. So uh, the Rockies legitimately have produced a lot of high-quality position players. Uh, they're going to have to continue to do more so on, on the pitching end to consistently compete. But um, it, it has been a source of frustration through the years. Um, and, I, and I do think, uh, quite honestly, uh, there are people who are a little bit lazy when they um, when they look at what transpires in Denver and just assume, well, who cares? It's, it's altitude. It's not denying that it's a great place to hit. It's not denying that, um, you know, Coors Field is the largest outfield in in baseball, so you are going to, you know, put up uh, nice offensive numbers there. But um, it's like with a ball going over the wall. Coors Field is a huge ballpark. If you hit the ball out of the ballpark at Coors Field, chances are you hit it out of the ballpark anywhere else in baseball also. So um, I, I do think it's a bit of a, a misnomer, and, I, and I, do, um, I, I do think that a lot of people need to take a closer look at times when they're breaking down Rockies players. Well, yeah, last time I checked, Larry Walker was a great player with the Expos. Larry Walker was a great player with the Cardinals. And there's a reason he's going into the Baseball Hall of Fame. It wasn't just because he hit at Coors Field. And by the way, I think that actually is a really good thing when you look at Rockies going forward, is that Larry Walker is going into the Hall of Fame, and that looks like we're finally going to get away from the, oh, he played at Coors Field effect. Yeah, it it definitely um, is helpful. Though, you know, it took him, you know, to his 10th uh, year of eligibility. And some of that is, you know, Larry dealt with a lot of injuries and, and didn't quite stay on the field probably as much as he would have liked. Uh, but it's awesome that he's going in, and hopefully that will start to, uh, you know, change the narrative a little bit as, uh, you know, Rockies players or players that uh, played the bulk of their career uh, in Denver and how people uh, assess them. And, you know, next on the, on the list is, is Todd Helton. I mean, you look at Todd Helton's numbers. Um, you talked about a guy with almost 600 doubles and, you know, well over 300 home runs and over 300 batting average and a tremendous defensive first baseman. I mean, Todd, Todd Helton's numbers are, are Hall of Fame worthy, and we'll see if uh, over, over a period of time if, uh, if he's able to get in also. Well, and your third baseman obviously is very, very special. Nolan Arenado is a guy who signed that big contract, and we kind of root for players now to stay with one franchise their entire career. But I, I don't really know what was going on this offseason and when we were down at spring training. I hope the relationship has been patched up because I'd like to see him spend his entire career and be the face of the franchise. How are we right now between Nolan Arenado and the Colorado Rockies? You know, it's funny on the uh, on social media. I got this question the other day: Do uh, do I think that the, uh, the with the you know the fact that we're dealing with this pandemic will will it actually help uh, mend fences between Nolan and the organization? I, I don't know if if that's necessarily the case because it's not like people are conversing every day. Um, what I think mends fences the most is winning. And if, if the Rockies, if, if we get the season started up and, you know, if whatever it is, let's say it's 125 games, if, you know, if, if the Rockies um, can be relevant and, uh, and, you know, play more like 2018 than 2019, 
then everybody will be happy, and it's amazing how things get put to bed, if you will. Uh, I'm with you. I, I love to see when great players um, stay with the same organization throughout their careers. Um, naturally, I'm significantly biased with this particular one. I'd love to see Nolan stay a Rocky. Uh, I know the fan base would obviously love to see Nolan um, you know, stay a Rocky. It's the same thing with the guy who plays next to him also, Trevor Story. I mean, yeah. Nolan's on a Hall of Fame trajectory, and, I, and I'll tell you what, um, you guys have a nice uh, you know, shortstop out in Oakland. Uh, Trevor, Trevor Story is a unique talent, and you know, a couple of years from now, people are going to be looking at him and saying, wait a second, this, this, guy, this guy's a freak, which uh, you know, I think he is right now, but more people are going to start to realize that about uh, him as well. But getting back to the Nolan thing, yeah, uh, I, I'm hopeful that, that when we get back to playing, the Rockies get back to uh, you know, winning and that this kind of gets – uh, you know, push to uh, one of those stories that that occurred in the off season, and and everybody's happy again. Yeah, very similar. What you guys have on the left side, what we have, and it's crazy to think that Nolan and Matt Chapman were high school teammates. And as you mentioned, Marcus Simeon, what a great year he had. And I think about Trevor Story. He's the first shortstop in Major League Baseball history to hit at least twenty home runs in four straight seasons, and. He really didn't strike out last year. I just, he, when you, I mean, for if you play fantasy baseball, he's a dream, but Trevor's story is really, really special and doing stuff we've never seen before in Major League Baseball. Well, first of all, he's a freak defensively. His, his range and his athleticism defensively, and he puts away, you know, the everyday play. Um, he, he is, he's going to win. He's going to win multiple gold gloves. He was a finalist this year. Um, you understand it's usually a process in winning the gold glove, but he is, he is, uh, as good as there is defensively. Um, he has top shelf power as you were mentioning, and he is legitimately one of the three or four fastest players in baseball. So, I mean, he had 20-something stolen bases last year. He was telling me during spring training he, he really wants to uh, improve that number um, this year. And we'll see if that's possible now because it doesn't look like they're going to play a full season. But point being, there's nothing on a baseball field he can't do. And the, the strikeouts, which were you know high initially in his first couple of years, you know, it's, it's kind of trending in the right direction um, where he's not swinging and missing uh, quite to the level that he was. So, yeah, he, he's, a, he's a special talent with a, with a ridiculous work ethic. Let's end on this. If Oberg stays healthy and Wade Davis rebounds and starts pitching like he did in Kansas City, how much better will the Colorado Rockies be in 2020? Well, I think, uh, I think those two guys are key. And I would say they don't. You have to have a couple other good stories as well in the, in the bullpen. Jairo Diaz and Carlos Estevez, two other names I would I would implore people to keep an eye on. They're they're still relatively young um, in their big league career. You know, power arms, and the Rockies need to have, as I said, a, a couple of other good stories down there because uh, not only did the rotation struggle last year for the most part but the bullpen really struggled also. So, yeah, for, it, it's the same for every team. You know this, that when you go into a season, 
you you're going to always have um, several questions. The more questions that you can answer in a positive way after playing three or four months, typically if you're able to answer most of those questions in uh, you know in a in a positive vein, you're doing pretty well. And the converse is true also. So I would agree with you. Uh, I think Scott Oberg, uh, who was very good last year until he had to get shut down with the the blood clots. You need Wade Davis to uh, to be more like you know the guy who's been throughout most of his career, and then a couple other guys um, down there to to really emerge, if you will. And then I think the Rockies have a chance to compete. But uh, yeah, I know you already broken down the NL West. This is a really this is a really good division. I mean, the Dodgers, uh, talent wise, are the best team in the in the National League and have been, uh, you know, along with the Nationals for the last several years. Um, you know, the Giants probably the only team that's still really in transition. Padres have a plethora of great young players. I, I like the moves that Arizona, you know, has done. So this this is a tough division. Um, you know, go ahead and try to win 88 plus games in in the National League West is not going to be an easy task. Well, I can tell you over the years, I've really enjoyed your guys' broadcast. Uh, tuning in every once in a while on MLB.com. You guys do a fantastic job, and I think it's going to be important for guys like you to get back on television for all of us who are, who are locked in our homes right now. So hopefully that will uh, start sooner than later. We really appreciate the time. Be safe, and we'll talk to you during the regular season. Yeah, Chris, uh, you know, we all look forward to it, obviously. You know, whether you're a baseball fan or you're us, you know, we're baseball fans, but uh, live to be able to, you know, have the privilege to come into people's living rooms every evening and uh, and uh, document uh, your favorite baseball team. We all can't wait to get uh, get back in the booth, get back to the stadium and, um, you know, in the interim, hang in there. Um, keep your social distancing and, and uh, let's let's. Uh, Let's win this battle against uh, COVID-19. Jerry, thanks so much for taking the time. And we're talking a little Dodger baseball here as we're getting ready for the 2020 season. No problem. Thanks for having me. Well, good news. I mean, more than just baseball that we're going to be talking about is uh, a new TV deal has been struck down in Los Angeles. Sounds like it's exciting times for Dodger fans. It is exciting times. You know, one of these things that, you know, I know the Dodgers and Spectrum has been, trying to work with um, other distributors to make sure that everybody gets a chance to see Dodger baseball, you know, not just in the LA area, but uh, you know, around the country. And I know I live in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I'm watching uh, Dodgers TV right now uh, using direct TV. So it's exciting times for all Dodger fans. Now everybody will get a chance to see on your mobile devices or at home, you have a chance to, to watch Dodger baseball. Yeah, because it was pretty crazy. You're talking about the, the the second largest market in the country. You're talking about one of the great organizations in baseball history. And so many people in Southern California just weren't able to see baseball because of, you know, these cable wars. So, I, I you know, you win 106 games and a lot of your fans don't get to uh, get to see it. It's good for the radio people. But for television, I really felt bad for the fans. Yeah, of course. We, we all felt bad for the fans. You want to be able to to be able to put your product out there for everybody to see. But again, you know, when, you, when it's, you know, sports, we talk about all the time, it's a business and it's big business, whether it's the NFL, major league baseball, the NBA, it is a big business. So, you know, finally, you know, a deal's in place. Everybody gets a chance to see uh, this great Dodger team uh, for many, many years. 
and hopefully we all get back on the field uh, sooner rather than later. You know, the bottom line is, you know, we, we've been going over the National League West. So we've done Arizona. We've previewed the Giants and the Diamondbacks and the Rockies. And everybody we bring on, everybody says, listen, it's the Dodgers division. They're going to win it unless something dramatically goes wrong for them, which I don't think is going to happen. They'll win the division for the eighth straight year. This is just they, – they have turned out a product. This is an absolute powerhouse. And the thing about the Dodgers, they have all this talent, and then they also have a minor league system that's one of the best in baseball. So this isn't going to change anytime soon. Well, we hope not. You know, the Dodgers have done a great job. It started with Andrew Friedman. Uh, and, and really before him, Ned Coletti did an outstanding job drafting guys like uh, Clayton Kershaw, uh, trading for guys like Andre Ethier, drafting Matt Kemp, and really starting that foundation years ago. And then Andrew Friedman has taken that foundation and really enhanced it. And, you know, we always talk about the big markets, whether it's New York, uh, Chicago, Boston, and L.A. If you really look at the dynamics of the Dodgers, you know, yes, they're a big market team, but their foundation pieces outside of Clayton Kershaw are young guys. You know, Corey Seager has not hit free agency yet. Obviously, Cody Bellinger is starting to enter arbitration. Uh, their core guys are young guys, the homegrown guys. So, you know, that is the, the key to success in, in baseball. You have to have a minor league system. You have to have guys coming in, into the fold, ready to contribute year in and year out. You know, this year we'll have Gavin Lux uh, be our starting second baseman. Gonsling will be in the mix. Urias, who's been around the last couple of years but still just 21 years old, he's going to be in the rotation. Dustin May will have a chance to, to throw the ball to the bullpen. So they're deep because the scouts have done their homework the scouts have done the job of drafting these guys, the right guys, and implementing them in the system. And that's why the Dodgers have been so successful the last six, seven, eight years. You know, last time we had you on, we were talking about the great infield, uh, that the team that you were on, the World Series champion 2009 New York Yankees, and that infield, the names are just incredible. And now I think about the outfield that you're going to be broadcasting around. I mean, how excited are you to see Cody Bellinger and Mookie Betts in the same outfield? It's incredible. You know, we talk about their offensive production. You know, both can, can steal a base. They can go first to third, score on a double from first. Uh, they're dynamic athletes on the base path. They hit the long ball. But something that kind of gets overshadowed, you just mentioned it, is their defense. For them to be able to cover ground, Cody in center field and Mookie Betts in right field, and to be able to take away doubles, take away triples, and to have those type of outs to help your pitching staff, that just gives your pitching staff that much more confidence to throw strikes. Knowing that, hey, you know, if they do drive the ball, we have guys that can go out and get the ball in the outfield. And you put A.J. Uh, Pollock in left along with Jock Peterson, two guys that can also go get the ball uh, and, and know how to play defense. And then our guys that, that are coming off the bench, CT3 and Kiki Hernandez, who Kiki, in my opinion, is the best super utility player in all of baseball. It just goes to show the dynamic of this team, the depth of this team, and you have athletes everywhere. 12 walk-off wins for the Dodgers in 2019. That was the most in Major League Baseball. If there is only one thing that I look at, and you tell me if you may be a little bit worried about, it would be the bullpen. Well, I think every team worries about the bullpen. 
you know, I think, you, you know, I talk to Nick Coletti all the time. We work together uh, on Dodgers TV. And I think every GM worries about uh, pitching and, and really more so the bullpen, knowing what are you going to get when you uh, call down the bullpen in the sixth, seventh, eighth, or ninth inning. And sometimes, you know, you have a, these relievers have unbelievable years, and the very next year, the same guy, you know, has a, a terrible year. That's just the nature of the beast. And the Dodgers have done a great job of getting a lot of guys in the mix with great arms um, that have had some success. Jimmy Nelson now is healthy. Alex Wood now is healthy. Uh, they're in the mix. We have young guys like Dustin May, Gonsling. They'll be in the mix. Uh, really good guy, really good arms in that bullpen. And then uh, Kelly, who's a World Series champion, and really threw the ball extremely well the second half of last year. And one of your guys that we, we got from you guys uh, uh, this, this offseason, who had a great success in that team. And, and, you know, we're really excited about Kenley Jansen uh, having a bounce back year. So this bullpen is deep. They have had some success in the past, and hopefully they'll have success this year. Yeah, Blake Trinan, if he if he rebounds and Jansen rebounds, I mean, those are two all-star closers right there. That'll be lights out city when you think about it. And, you know, when, when, when I look at the Los Angeles Dodgers and the expectations, I love you bring up Ned Coletti. He's a friend of the program, uh, dealing with Ned all these years when he was with the Giants, really a special guy. Now actually a scout for our San Jose Sharks, which is funny, but That's just right. – Talk about the expectations. We'll end on this because we know you got to get on a conference call here. Just talk about the yep. expectations because basically in Los Angeles, it, it's winter bust. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the players talk about it all the time, whether it's Justin Turner, Kenley Jansen, Cody Bellinger, uh, Dave Roberts. Yes, there's expectations, but you want those expectations. You expect those expectations. And the Dodgers are no question the other team to beat the National League. Probably the team to beat in all of baseball now with the trades of David Price and, and Mookie Betts coming in the mix. They're the team to beat, but you want that type of pressure. i tell you what's pressure. When you're a team that's expected to lose 115, 125 games, and you're going to be out, out of the, the race of the first 25, 30 games of the season, and you, you may not have a job uh, uh, in, in a month or two or three, that's pressure. You want the type of pressure where you're expected to win, you're expected to do great things, and the Dodgers expect it, and, and they love it. Hey, great stuff as always. We appreciate it, and congratulations on the new TV deal because I know that affects you and all the Dodger fans. Of course, our buddy Ned Coletti, and that, that's a really great thing for Dodger baseball, so congratulations on that. Really appreciate it. It's great for the fans, uh, great for Dodgers players and staff, and we're excited about it. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Be safe. You too. You take care of yourself. The great Bip Roberts joins us bipster how you hanging in there <laughs> hey man no i never hit many home runs but i love the game and i love talking to townie what's up man well we were just to, on this day in 1989 king griffey jr made his debut against the athletics and dave stewart and his very first at bat he ripped right. a double off the left field wall and I was just talking about, you know, Ken Griffey playing center field and led the league in home runs four times. Bip, when you play a premium position and you're that good on offense, that's why you're such a special player and that's why you walk right into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah. No one ever questioned that kid, huh? <laughs> that, that's legitimate superstar. You know, it's funny when you say that first hit. I remember talking to Dave 
Stewart because, you know, we all work together now. We get a chance yeah. to talk and compare stories. And he was talking about how when he faced Kenny that first time, how Kenny just was so quick to the baseball. And he was just like, wow, you know, looking like, wait a minute, this kid can't turn my stuff around like that. But he was he was seeing something special that day. You know, it was when you come in and get a hit against a guy like Dave Stewart, your, your first for your first big league hit, that does say a lot about who you are and who you can become. And wow, wow, what a ride, huh? What a great player. Well, and we're talking 1989. This is this is the the height of the A's empire. I mean, you're talking about future Hall of Famers. You're talking about MVPs. You're talking about All Stars. I mean, this A's team will go on to win the World Series. They had played in the World Series the year before against the Dodgers. Dave Stewart's a star, and you go up there in your first at bat and rip a double at the Coliseum on a team that's star studded like that. That's incredible. Well, Tony, you, you talk about a tremendous talent. You know, we and and not to say that Kenny didn't work his butt off, because he really did. But man, you know, when we use that term "blue blood," it doesn't matter who's facing you. You you're going to get the best of them. And and you know, Kenny was one of those blue bloods at the time. And 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 just to add, you know, Roberto Alomar and these guys were all starting to come through. These were all juniors and blue bloods from from great major league fathers and. It was a good time to see these guys grow up and just blossom. So, yeah, it, it, Kenny was special, man. And and I was I had a chance to uh, you know play against him and talk with him and get to enjoy his company. And you know that's something I, I will always cherish. But what what a great kid! And that was his nickname, the kid. You know. Yeah, and I think because we you're a Warriors fan, so we've talked a lot about Clay Thompson and Steph Curry and the pedigree and growing up in NBA locker rooms. And you think mm-hmm. about like Barry Bonds did that in San Francisco with his dad. I mean, the stories of Barry shagging balls of Willie Mays or King Griffey Jr. growing up in the clubhouse of the Big Red Machine. What kind of advantage do you think a guy has? And we now have all these kids with the Blue Jays. Who, who grew up in Major League Baseball, what kind of advantage does that give you as a young athlete when you grew up with it? I think it's just you're born with it, and you're kind of taken off where the last talent ended. You know, they, they're getting it younger. They're getting things coming to them easier younger than maybe what the, the previous uh, generation had, previous father or grandfather it seemed like each generation got better and better when you look at that. Cause you know, I always look at Sandy and Roberto cause I was close to them in San Diego and Sandy was a great player. Sandy junior was a great player. Roberto was a hall of fame player. You know, it was just like, Whoa, man. And when you watched the talent, you were just were like their head and shoulders above everyone. But you know, there are some special guys that come along born to play the game. And you see that. But these guys, no matter who they faced, they were always the dominant players. And that was on every level. And you could always see it. So when you looked at these guys and you, and you had that eye test, you could just see that they were head and shoulders above. And whether they were already born into it, they had a, a, a different attitude because they were, they were always around the game, like you say, in the clubhouse with guys who were – their idols and who were the best players in the world. And they were getting tips and playing with these guys. And it started to feel like these, these superstar guys are just normal people. And I think when you get a chance to start 
you're around other kids of, you know, ball players. You, you go out and you compete and you play and you develop confidence. And you say, whoa, I'm, I'm already competing against some of the best. And it's just a confidence thing. And, you know, it's, it's the seed that grows. And that seed usually grows a little stronger than the first one. And, and, I, and we've seen it many times. I, I'm so glad you brought up Sandy. You know, we, we had him on the program down in Las Vegas when the A's were taking on the Indians as he was filling in for Terry Francona. And it's kind of laughable to think about it now. Sandy Alomar Jr. was technically the second best catcher in all of baseball behind Benito Santiago, who you also know. And he's playing in Las Vegas for the Las Vegas Stars, and he's sitting in AAA for years, and he's the second-best catcher in baseball. It's crazy to think about that, Bip. Yeah, that, that, that San Diego Padre organization was loaded then. And, I mean, you had Benito, you had Sandy, you had Roberto, and you had Joey Cor. You had around just about every position two or three guys. And it was tough to crack that 25. So um, at that time, Benito was the fastest in the West. And there was nothing you can do about that. Had one rookie of the year, and it was always in big league camp. It was Benito and Sandy. And we all knew Benito was going to be the guy, and Sandy would probably go back to AAA, but he should be in the big leagues. That was always the big but. But he should be in the big leagues. And we played together Sandy's second year in AAA. Or was it his first? I think it was his first year in AAA. And we ended up winning the, uh, the championship in the PCL. And it just wasn't room because Benito was there for Sandy. So Sandy had to end up going over to Cleveland. And um, the rest is history. He's had, he had a great career. Yeah, no doubt about it. And they, they had some really good teams with the Indians. It's surprised they never won the World Series. They got close, but they never won the World Series. Uh, right now, if if you were playing, what would Bip Roberts do to stay in shape, knowing that at some point, hopefully, we're going to get a season going here? Wow, Tony. <laughs> I mean, I, I like to say that I, I've been on strike before, but never for a reason like this. And I don't know. Hopefully, I would be locked up in a cage somewhere, getting some swings and trying to stay ready, or hanging with the family and just enjoying this time. But uh, for the most part, you'd have to make the best of it. But as a baseball player, it's just strange territory to sit at home right now and doing nothing. You're supposed to stay in the house. I mean, unless you have the right facilities, there's not much you can do. So I would just kind of be hoping that the powers that be, especially our, uh, our organization, our, our players association would, make sure that whatever happens that they make sure they, they think about us first and make sure we get ourselves ready so that, you know, we can get on the field, but I don't know, man, what can you do? You can, you can run in the house. You can do sit-ups and push-ups. You, if you have a weight room, you can do whatever, but not everybody's, uh, not everybody probably has that, that opportunity. So man, it's just tough Tony. I, I don't know what I would be doing, but I hope that I'd make sure I was at least, at least I was in physical good shape. At least I'd get my runs in, at least. Well, I think for hitters and pitchers, it's different. And it's going to take longer for pitchers. I, I don't I don't think for you, like in the prime of your career, it would take a long time for you to get ready to go. Right. 
Right. I, I was ready 10 days in the spring training, so it, it doesn't take it didn't take much. But, you know, for some guys, they, they, they may look, be a little older right now or something like that. You just don't know. Everybody's different. Everybody's DNA is different. So I think that this makes sure when we do come back, if we come back, I don't know what's going to happen. Does anybody know? You know, that make sure guys are, are ready to go. And this kind of opens up. I mean, we know who the powerhouse teams are, but wouldn't you mm-hmm. say this opens up for, you know, a darling to come out of nowhere and surprise some people if you're doing a shortened season? Yeah, anything could happen. You know, Townie, in the minor leagues, they had two separate seasons, one half yeah. and then another. Sometimes that team that, that jumped out there won that half, and, and they weren't the best team in the league at that time. But things happen. You, you don't know until you play the game. So that would be interesting. And it would just be something that, again, 2020 has been a weird year. And, um, geez, I wish I could rewind it and start over. But as we go forward, you know, <laughs> you might want to be prepared for anything to happen. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think about young pitching. As much as we want a baby young pitching, it's something I've been asking everybody, Bip, is – you know, especially when I look at the A's, when you have Jesus Lazardo and you have A.J. Puck and you're worried about their innings. Well, now in a shortened season, I don't think you're going to be worrying about their innings anymore. And I think that's going to play well for the A's. What do you think? Well, you, you, you hope they've turned that corner to where they get these funny injuries at last and they have to have surgery. So, yeah, you still have to be care- like you said at the beginning, it's different for pitchers. So. Whatever the program is, I hope they, they've continued it and they didn't stop because all those guys are healthy and they look ready to go. And so if they're re- ready, healthy, strong, the way they were looking, then I, I'd get them out there, you know, when the season starts. I'd let them go. I, but as long as they stay on their programs and every, everything's on point. Now, if you get some, some little nagging injuries or whatever, then, you know, you have to pitch them accordingly. But these are young, strong boys. Get them out there. Let's see what they got. Because right now, if they're young and strong like this, Tony, and you were you were a guy who could, you know, get out there and mix it up with the hitters, you know how you feel, and you know what your body's capable of, and and if you're controlling your own destiny, why not control it? I think if if they're out there and they're doing their job, I think Bob Melvin give them that opportunity to, to see how far they can go. You know, one thing about being a switch hitter, and it really mm-hmm. fascinates me, because people don't think about it. It's two different swings. You know, if you're a right-handed hitter or a left-handed hitter, you got one swing. When you're a switch hitter, you've got two swings. And it's always fascinated me to talk to switch hitters about how you maintain each swing. Is each swing the same? Is it different? Talk about what you did as a switch hitter. Well, I worked on that tee an awful lot. I made sure that from both sides of the plate, I had plate coverage on whatever pitch may come across the plate, whether it be inside, down the middle, or away. I worked on certain approaches on both sides. I always felt I was uh, evenly. I I thought I was an even hitter on both sides until maybe later in my career I was more dominant left-handed. But for the most part, yeah, it may be two different swings from two different sides, but in both of those swings there's a lot of different swings because you have to be ready for whatever – pitch may come across the plate. So where most guys are just worried about standing inside the ball on one side of the plate, we've got to stand inside the ball on both sides of the plate. Whereas you may be on the left side, a more low ball hitter, 
On the right side, you could be more of a high ball hitter. So you got to understand your zones a little more. And, you know, when you get that pitch or when you make that swing, it, it's got to be perfect because, again, you don't get many chances to, to – to, you, you don't get your pitch – when you get your pitch, you have to make sure that that swing is ready for that pitch. And so that's as a switch hitter from both sides of the plate, <clears throat> using one approach, it usually helps both sides of the plate. So working with Tony Gwynn, and he always said, do what you do best. If you could have one approach from both sides of the plate, that meant you kept it simple and you could do your best. You know, that's crazy to think that like the left side, you're a low ball hitter, the right side, you like it more up. You think it would be equal on both sides, but it's not. Well, then you think about which eye is dominant. I was a right-handed hitter. So my right eye was dominant and I could seem like I could see pitches better. I could track pitches better. Whereas on the right side, from the left side, I'd have to take a pitch or two to see exactly what I was trying to do at the plate because lefties were a little more creative on the mound or it, it seemed because the, the left eye was as dominant as the right eye. Even though it seemed both eyes were the same when I would take an eye test. But when you go from one side to the other, if you've been on the left side all day and then your last at bat, you go to the right side, that's when the eyes kind of, you got to get adjusted again. So that's a, that's an adjustment that most hitters don't have to make, but you have to make it because that's what your job is as a switch hitter. You have to be consistent on both sides. So, yeah, it's different. And, you know, it's like certain pitches I could hit well on the left side, but on the right side, that's not the pitch I want to hit. I didn't want to hit down and in on the right side. I wanted to hit middle end on the right side, drive it the other way, or catch a breaking ball and drive it to the gap. So, again, you got to know what your swing can do. And then when you get the pitches, you got to execute. So it's just about keeping balance on both sides. All right, let's end on this, Bip, as there's going to be a lot of baseball players who are going to be practicing by themselves or just another person. And I think at this point, your practice net would be perfect for kids who are still trying to stay in shape for the baseball season. Tell them about your net and, and where they can get it. County, that's a great lead-in, and you're absolutely correct because with the cutoff man by Teammate Sports, what we did was develop a net that you can actually play catch with, throw it into a net, into a target, and instead of going in and picking up those balls, you can actually just pick the bucket up and just keep your, your, your drills going. And so it's, a, it's a, a cutoff man where you can move it around. You can do your feeds in the backyard right now. If you're an outfielder, you can hit the cutoff man. Um, if you're a second baseman, you can actually throw across the backyard as if you're throwing to a first baseman. So you can move it around. And, and, and for right now, it's perfect because if you have to be alone and, and you have your kid with you or, and you guys are working out, you can do it in your backyard and you can get a lot of work in. So this might be a good time to work on those little things when it comes to the defensive side of baseball. Bip, you're the best. Be safe and we'll talk to you soon. All right, Tony. You stay safe, man. Stay safe and healthy. Scott Emerson, the pitching coach of your Oakland Athletics, joins us. And, Emo, it's just one of those deals that people miss certain voices, and you're one of the voices we've truly missed here on A's Cast Live. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How about you guys? 
Uh, and let me tell you, I uh, we talked to uh, our boss today and said, hey, man, we, 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 we need to go three hours. These two-hour shows are not doing it. I can only play so much Monopoly. I can only watch Frozen 2 so many times with my kids. It's time to get back to work. I, I, I agree 100%. You know, uh, I'd love to be out there working right now. So what have you been – everybody's kind of doing deep dives on certain things with their spare time. What what have you really been concentrating on? Well, I, you know, getting back to watching some of the TV shows that I watch, uh, spending time with the wife and the dog, and uh, I've actually done some baseball stuff. You know, I, I've uh, watched some video uh, – got a little head start on some advanced scouting stuff uh just just to just to keep my mind fresh uh i've uh you know read some other baseball stuff some books and some new theories and some new thoughts uh brushed up on some technology stuff and uh just trying to stay sharp in this time of uh you know crisis that we're going through and uh you know trying to keep the keep my mind on on some baseball and doing some work you know, down at spring training, I ran into the president of the Dodgers, Stan Caston, and, you know, this guy, you know, he's run baseball teams, NBA teams, hockey teams. I mean, he's just a legend. And I, I was I was saying, you know, with all the sports and the technology in sports, how much it's changed over all these years. And he said, he goes, you know, I tell people that used to work for me, if you're out of the game one or two years the game truly passes you by because the technology that we have really in all sports, but we'll stick in baseball, the technology that keeps coming your way. If you don't stay up on it, man, this game will fly right by you, Emo. Well, you know, I, I think that's true to a, a degree, but also it, it's, you know, having the right people reading the technology. You know, uh, I, I watch pitchers uh, nowadays uh, and, 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 you know, see things on the internet that these guys are just, all about one thing and we got a lot of guys that are trying to become uh long distance drive golfers rather than play golf you know they just want to get on the on the mound and and throw it as hard as they can and and read the numbers and jump for joy and and you know the ball's off the backstop so you know uh as much as i do love the technology and and i keep up to date with it you know it it's only as good as the people who are reading the technology and who are reading the analytics because if you're trying to get players to do things that they're incapable of doing, and I think we've talked about this in the past, when, when you have a, a quote-unquote C student, you know, that C student's a C student for a reason. So, you know, to try to get him to be an A student is generally not realistic, but to get that guy to be a B student or a B-plus student, get them better is where you want to go. So, you know, you look at the technology, if you're reading it wrong, you know, average seems to be the number everybody talks about. I don't want average. I want us to be better than average. If we settle for average, then, then we're not, you know, living up to the expectations that the organization wants us to, to live up to, in my opinion. So I, I really do believe that technology is great, but I, I also believe that who's reading the technology, how you're forming uh, the game plan, how you're forming your communications with your players and trying to get them to do, uh, you know, certain things based on, you know, what we have to remember too is the, the analytics and the technology is feedback that's already happened. You know, you need people to, to try to, to get ahead of 
these things. You know, if and I think we talked about this too. First pitch strikes generally 58, 59%. You know, I want our guys a little bit higher. So how am I going to use the technology and the analytics to get them to be a little bit better? My expectation is not going to be 75%. You know, so like I said, I think you need important people that know how to read it, how to translate it to the players. And, um, you know, there's a lot of mis guided information out there and you're, you're watching a lot of guys become long drive champions and not pitchers right now and they, they got to get back to be becoming uh major league pitchers not minor league throwers yeah how many young guys even when you look at amateur guys that they're basically just pitching for the radar gun well you know a, a lot of guys do that because you know uh to be honest with you when, when you know a scout shows up and they throw up the radar gun and you're 86 that radar gun's probably being put back in the pocket. and But when that gun goes up and you're throwing 93, 94, they're keeping it on you for a while. So, you know, it's kind of the, the uh, devil's advocate here. What do I want to do? You know, velocity will get you in the door, but it won't, won't keep you. It won't, you won't have sustainability if you can't pitch. So, you know, I always want to find that pitcher. Obviously, you want the pitcher with velocity that knows how to pitch and move his baseball around and has electric stuff. Those are the guys you're looking for. But when you get guys that uh, are trying to create velocity with a bad delivery or possibly fly off the baseball and expose the ball a little bit earlier to the hitter, you know, every major league hitter can time a bullet. If that's all you got is velocity and you're flying off the ball and, and the hitters see it, you, he gains an advantage off you, you're in trouble. So uh, I, I get the point where these guys want to try to get the door, but let's look at the curve if, and I'm not sure of the number anymore right now, but I know the number used to be 12% of, uh, you know, guys who signed professional contracts actually play a day in the big leagues. And uh, if that number is going down, then the technology isn't working for that person. You know, you know what I mean? I mean, I think we even talked about the, uh, and I'm not saying earn run average is the great statistic, but, you know, earn run averages aren't getting better. They've been getting worse. So, uh, you know, we got to be ahead of the, the analytics, ahead of the technology in our thought processing of uh, getting these players to be better. You know, MLB.com has been doing a series of the best pitches in baseball, who's got the best fastball, who's got, who has the best breaking ball. And they were showing this curveball by Clayton Kershaw. And you talk all the time about pitching is about interrupting timing because hitting is timing. And you got a big old hook like that, my God! I mean, that it's just so impressive. Some of these guys with their breaking balls and just the amount of the speed and the spin and being able to throw it for strikes or even throwing it down in the zone for the strikeout. You got a hammer like that. What a weapon! Yeah, he he's you know it, it's a uh, it's what we used to call a top to bottom breaking ball. He's got good top spin. Uh, it starts out up in the top half of the zone and all of a sudden explodes to the bottom part of the zone. And that's where he can play that good high fastball off of, off of that exploding breaking ball. But, uh, you know, County uh, too, that's Clayton Kershaw. And, and he has other weapons. So the other weapons that he's using can help make that one weapon really good. You know, we've talked about, you know, a guy that has a um, – you know, just say he's got a below average slider and an average curveball. Well, if you, you know, some people will say ditch the slider. Well, if he throws that below average slider every now and then, but then he has that average curveball, 
the thought of the hitter thinking, okay, which breaking ball's coming makes that curveball maybe play up a little bit more. So, you know, when you're talking about guys who have electric pitches like, like Kershaw, he's probably got some other great intangibles as well. When you think about bullpens, and they're just year to year, you just don't know. And then some of these players, you could have a, a, an incredible year, and then the next year you fall off. Why do you think there's so much inconsistency with these guys coming out of the bullpen? Well, I, I think, you know, if you, if you look at most, most relievers were starters, and at, at some point in time in their career, they probably st- struggled as a starter, and they got moved to the bullpen. So maybe it's just that, you know, consistency phase of, of pitching. But, you know, if, if you look at, you know, the great relievers, uh, Raleigh Fingers and, and uh, Mariano Rivera, those guys were sustainable, you know, because they were really good pitchers. And, and those are the types of guys that you're looking at. But how, how long these guys can actually pitch in the big leagues is, has been really impressive to me. I mean, we, we've had a lot of guys, uh, in our uh, bullpen that have been pitching five, six, seven years in the big leagues. So uh, they've done a great job of, uh, you know, reinventing themselves at times. I mean, you look at Soria. Uh, Soria used to be a, a, a mid to high 90 mile an hour fastball guy. And now, now he's a great crafty right-hander. He can still run it up there in the mid nineties when he has to. You look at Petit, you know, I remember seeing uh, Petit as a starter uh, in Fresno in AAA. In, in 11 or 12, and, you know, I think Petit's one of the best relievers in the game because he's got the ability to move his baseball around, change speed. So, you know, I, I think a lot of guys that are relievers nowadays are that hard thrower that uh, struggles with his mechanics, but he, he comes in, and for lack of a better term, you know, he's the blow-and-go guy. He comes in, tries to throw it as hard as he can. You don't care about how many pitches he throws. You're opening throws between, you know, 15 and 25, so you can use them the next day. But uh, he'll find a way to get his outs because he's that good and he's that competitive. But once they really start to master their craft, you look at a guy like Liam Hendricks, you know. Uh, Liam, Liam has electric stuff. And when Liam's in the zone and, and Liam's breaking ball is, is in and out of the zone rather than bounces breaking ball, I think that was one of the best things about Liam last year. Is he, he threw his slider a little bit more competitive and, and it was more tempting for the hitters. And then, boom, he exploded guys with an elevated fastball. And I just think that, that Liam's always had those tools in his toolbox. Uh, I just think last year, you know, Wani developed a lot of confidence when you're out there and you're pitching good, you're going to gain confidence. And hopefully that confidence for him can roll in. But he's always had that stuff, so now let's hope that, uh, you know, he can put it together and have another great season for us. What an amazing story he is. What a man he is off the field with trying to help so many different people. But you look at his ride where he's DFA'd, then he comes back. No one wanted him. Then he comes back. He starts the wild card game. And then next season, he's an all-star. And then this season, he's on the media guide. For God's sakes, the media guide is always reserved for the best players, and he's an all-star. I mean, just talk about the growth you've seen in him as a player. And It's truly – it's like a Disney story. Well, I think he's done an, an amazing job of you know, self-awareness. Uh, he takes a lot of responsibilities for himself. Uh, he understands what he's trying to do. He knows what he wants to do. 
I think one of the big uh, contributors uh, to his success is when he did get uh, designated and he got sent down, uh, he transformed his body. Uh, you know, he lost some weight. He went on a, a, a diet. I'm not sure what diet he went on, but he went on a, a diet. He, he lost weight. He looked lean and strong, though. He looked lean and strong. He got into throwing uh, a long toss program that he liked. He got into a routine that he liked. And uh, that just gave him a lot of confidence. And it just carried on to, to last season. And, you know, he became an all-star. I mean, you look at the difference between, you know, uh, major league pitchers around the league and, and the difference isn't, you know, mostly physical. It's between the ears and, and your work habits. You get in what you, uh, you're, you get out what you put in. And he put in a lot of work with that diet and that long toss program. Uh, he came back to us fresh, uh, during that time. Uh, and I think it was eight or nine games. He, he uh, opened maybe in September and, and he did a great job and, and he was rewarded for it uh, with the wild card opportunity, but you know he kept it going, and that's mental toughness and and to have the ability to to keep working at your craft and keep grinding and and I I remember reading a quote about him uh, this spring that he wasn't going to take anything for granted of him being the closer, and that's a good strong mindset that hey I need to work for everything that uh, I get and. Uh, like I said, you, you get out what you put in, and he put in the time and the effort. You know, I've been watching a lot of these retro baseball games that they've been airing on MLB Network. It's been great. And, you know, one thing that I've noticed, and you've talked about it in this interview, is how yesteryear pitchers were pounding the strike zone. They were strike one, was the best pitch in baseball, and they're pounding the strike zone. The other thing that I've really noticed, too, is even the big-time power bats – they don't strike out a lot. I mean, even though, like, in the Bucky Dent game, you got Reggie Jackson, who did strike out a lot, but he was still hitting 279. He made a lot of contact. And and I looked at the guys that would choke up, and Carlton Fisk was a young power hitter. He choked up on the bat. He's just There just seems to be a lot more contact and a lot more balls being put in play in yesteryear baseball. Have you watched any of these games? Yeah, and, and and to be honest with you, wow! I don't, some of these uh, pitching gurus out there, I don't I don't know if they, we could have played thirty years ago. Some of these deliveries just look totally different than they do nowadays, you know. Uh, but these guys were awesome pitchers. I mean, you look at Bob Gibson; he fell off the mound throwing gas and had an electric slider. Steve Carlton, the same thing. I watched Kenny Holtzman in a game a couple weeks ago in a Yankee uniform, crossed his body, didn't even see where the plate was. It looked like. But he had the ability to throw strikes and change speeds. But getting to the hitters, you know, the plate has always been the same, but the zone has it. You know, when the zone is bigger uh, 30, 40 years ago, you know, you need to swing the bat. You need to put more balls in play. You, you need Because the umpire is going to ring you up back in the day. Uh, you know, if they were close, they were borderline, generally the, the pitcher – uh, might have gotten two balls off the plate uh, years ago. And now that the strike zone has, has, you know, they do have that buffer zone, maybe a, an inch on both sides. And, you know, umpires aren't perfect, but they do work at about a 92 clip uh, percent clip where they're, you know, on calls they got to make, they're, they're making 92% of the calls correctly. So I, I hats off to those guys. But, you know, now – the game is, you know, with the technology, they're held accountable. So the strike zone shrinks. So the guys don't swing it as many pitches and the games last longer. 
I mean, that's just how it's going to go. If, if, if you want the games to move a little bit quicker, you're going to have to make the plate a little bit bigger and force these guys to swing. I think the big league hitters are so good nowadays that um, they don't chase as often as they used to because they're that good. Plus, they got you know, the off season nowadays. These guys are hitting and hitting and hitting. They got these indoor cages all over the country. They're hitting, they're hitting. You got these velo machines that they can set up and, and let balls eat at 90 miles an hour, 95 miles an hour in a, in a batting cage or set it up on the field. And they're constantly seeing velo. They're constantly seeing pitches. They're constantly hitting. And, you know, the more you work at the craft, your craft, the better you are. And I think the hitters are getting better because of all this stuff they're able to do. You mentioned strike zone. I was watching a grainy old World Series game where Sandy Koufax is up against the Minnesota Twins, and, and they got like Harmon Killebrew. I mean, the Twins are really good, and, and Sandy's on like two days rest, but he's pumping this like 97-mile-an-hour fastball, a four-seamer that's up at the letters, and then he's got that big hook, but they're calling that strike, that high strike that they don't call anymore, and I'm thinking – Man, you got no chance of hitting Sandy Koufax if you're calling you're calling it letter high and he's throwing 97. Yeah, I mean, talking about an impressive breaking ball from the left <laughs> side right there. I mean, geez, I mean, you know, Koufax is you know when I was a kid, you know, was in growing up in Baltimore, Maryland, I was more of a, a Flanagan and Scott McGregor was my idol. Jim Palmer, I've gotten to meet him, but you know, McGregor was the soft tosser with a pretty good hook, but. Uh, you know, those are the times when Koufax was just about done and they were still running some, some you know, stuff about Koufax. And, you know, I was able to see, you know, reruns of that curveball and that, that heater. You know, if that guy got to play five or six more years, he'd have set a lot more records. Yeah, I, th- I think his curveball had a decent spin rate. Yeah, well, I, I, don't, I don't need the rap soda or the track man to tell me that one either. <laughs> Emo, it's just great to hear your voice. We miss you. Be well, be safe, and we'll talk to you soon. All right, sounds well, guys. Hey, stay in the house. I'm in. I'm in. I'm I'm locked in my studio. Perfect. See I'm, you, I'm, locked in, I'm locked in my studio as well. <laughs> Take care, buddy. All right, you guys have a good one. You know what it is? It's Wednesday. That means this guy is on. Wednesday is known as Hump Day for everyone during the work week. But on A's Cast Live, Wednesday means one thing. It's time for 30 uninterrupted minutes with the two-time World Series champion, two-time All-Star, two-time Rawlings Gold Glove winner, A's analyst on NBC California, and the face of the franchise, Ray Fossey. Boss, how are you? Tony, I'm fine. How you doing, buddy? How's my, my friend Cody doing? Cody, how are you doing? Foss, I'm doing well. Uh, it's really weird. Tommy and I are doing the doing the show from different <laughs> houses. I'm in my apartment. He's in his. He's at his house. It's it's a whole different. It's a whole new world here, Foss. I knew that's exactly what was happening, and and as soon as I said that, I should have known better. But I am fine. Hope you guys are doing well, and I hope all these great A fans are being safe, staying well, and uh, we'll get some baseball going hopefully pretty soon. So I was thinking about you, Ray. Uh, on Twitter, there's this uh, Twitter account that's the Super 70s, and yeah. they got a lot of followers, like over 300,000, and they ask, who is your 
who is your first favorite baseball player? And everybody started putting pictures up there. And I wanted to put your picture with the sombrero. <laughs> where, 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 what, what team were you with when you took the picture with the sombrero? I was with the Oakland A's, and every time we showed that on our telecast with NBC Sports uh, California, I get a text from Joe Rudy, my teammate. He says, where can I get that picture? <laughs> so I don't know. It happened. I It, it was in spring training, I think, uh, maybe, uh, because it's Cinco de Mayo, five, you know, May 11, so I don't know. Uh, if it happened then, but yeah, I was with the athletics and it was just one of those things. Hey, Tony, you know, when you win, you do crazy things. When you're losing, you want to hide in a hole, but we were winning. So, you know, little crazy things came out and uh, that was one of them. But yeah, it, it keeps surfacing and uh, I, I don't know who took it. I don't know who has the original. All I know is I keep saying it and it makes me chuckle every time I do it. Evidently for Joe Rudy, the same thing, because he always lets me know he wants to get the picture. Oh, yeah, it's one of my favorites. And, you know, I was talking earlier about doing football with Bill Romanowski, who won four Super Bowls, and he always talked about, whether he was in San Francisco or Denver, that the goal was not to win the division. The goal was not to get to the playoffs. The goal was to win the World Series. And then now let's take it to you. You leave Cleveland and you come over to Oakland, and the A's at that time in the 70s, they felt the exact same way when you when you when you showed up to spring training. It wasn't about the division. They expected to win the World Series, and if you're going to win the World Series, you got to believe you can do it. You're exactly right, Tony. And I know in Cleveland, and what was interesting, what is interesting, that NBC Sports California, you know, with everything that's going on right now, I did something with the A's where the A's are having fans send in videos, and we kind of do a play-by-play. Well, there was one that was done by NBC Sports. Uh, California and say write an essay and then like a 60 second about whatever part of that that you want to. But what was interesting, Tony, and, and I know I'm probably repeating myself, but it does bear repeating that when I was traded from Cleveland, and as I say in this essay, you know, our dream is always to win, even though I knew in Cleveland we had no chance. By opening day, we're eliminated and, and just playing out the season. But when I showed up in Mesa, Arizona, or Rendezvous Park, I was disappointed because I'd been traded. I, my, you know, you, you talk about your favorite player. Mine was Stan Musial. I grew up in Southern Illinois. Stan Musial was my guy. Stan, the man Musial, wearing number six, that corkscrew stance, and he, he was my guy. So, you know, I, I was thinking of the collecting baseball cards at, at a time when there was no free agency and, and you know, nobody you – know, you signed with the club, you stayed there. And that's what happened with me in Cleveland. I, I signed there. I went through the minor league system. I played in the major leagues with the Cleveland Indians. Then all of a sudden, which I had no control, I was traded to the Oakland A's. And I was thinking, wow, I, I, first time I'm traded, which is very disappointing. Uh, it's heart-wrenching because you're saying nobody wants me, but evidently the A's did. So when I showed up at Rendezvous Park, Dick Green, outstanding second baseman, the club, you know, 10 days to go in spring training, Dick Williams had told me, he says, you have 10 days to learn this pitching staff. You've got to play every day. You're going to learn them because we're going to go into the season, as you said, getting ready to win another World Series, not win the division and then play somebody from the Eastern Division at that time, which is a five-game league championship series. It's to win the World Series. So Dick Green was just standing there kind of casually. I said, what's the deal, Green? And he said, we're ready. We know we're going to win. We're going to win our division. We're going to play somebody from the East. We're going to play somebody from the National League. We're going to be world champions again. 
And here I'm thinking that lightning doesn't strike twice in the same place, and I figured I just left Cleveland to come to a team that already won the world championship, and they're not going to win again. But we won it twice, two more. And, and I'll be honest with you, Tony, as you know me well enough, that when those two seasons started, the main objective, and even in 75 after we lost Catherine Hunter, the objective was to win the World Series. As Charlie Finley coined the phrase, keep it alive in 75. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. Uh, but we won three straight, or the A's won three straight. I was part of two of them. But, you know, it was such a change for me to come from Cleveland, a chance not to win, and they haven't won since 48. Didn't your grandfather play then? Yeah. Is that when, Yeah. So that's the last time the Indians won. And even in 97, they lost to the Marlins, you know, should have won that, and should have won in, in 07 when they lost to the Red Sox in the, in the league, uh, league championship. And, you know, all of a sudden I come to a ball club that we're winning. And tell me the interesting thing, and again, I've said it before, and for listeners who have heard it, then pardon me, but when I started with Cleveland, I came to the A's and part of two world championships and won the division in 75. We lost to the Red Sox. I go back to Cleveland, and I'll never forget having someone stand up, I think it was August, September, and said, you know, everybody's tired. Why don't, why don't we just come out and play the game? And I remember saying, that's the difference of winning and losing. When you know you're going to lose, you, can't, you don't want to come to the park. When you know you're going to win or feel that you're going to win, you can't wait to get to the park. And in 1973, after losing four seasons with the Cleveland Indians, I caught 143 games. We played against the Orioles, played the World Series, and I was not tired when the season was over. I said, what happened to the season? We're world champions, and it's over. And it was like, okay, what happened? But, but that was winning. That was coming to the park every day saying, we're going to win. And that's the goal of every team when they go to spring training. You know, really, as, as, again, as I said in this essay, it's January 1st, beginning of the season uh, of the new year. You're dreaming and, and hoping, and you go to spring training. Well, the A's have been fortunate to do that four times, which not a lot of clubs can say that in the last 50-plus years. Yeah, you mentioned that 48 World Series, the Boston Braves against the Cleveland Indians, and the Indians would win in six games. But my grandfather in that World Series hit 333 at an OPS of over 1,000 and hit two home runs against Bob Feller in that World Series. Wow. And, and how many times did you tell Bob Feller when he was live that you did that and that he did that? It was my brother. <laughs> it, it was an old-timers game when they used to have old-timers game. Uh, my brother went down. I, my brother had to be like 12 years old or whatever. And he goes, Mr. Feller, <laughs> Mr. Feller. And he, he came over. He says, my grandfather was Bob Elliott. And he goes, that SOB hit two home runs. <laughs> I started yelling at my brother. And my brother was like, oh, my God. And he ran away. <laughs> <laughs> That's Bob Feller. I mean, seriously, he did not. I, I, I did a couple of interviews with him, and I, I still play them and love listening to them in 2010 in July before he passed away that November but he was talking about players that he pitched against. He never mentioned your grandfather because he'd talk about Ted Williams and different guys. He could get them out. So evidently he couldn't get your grandfather out, especially the World Series. But he, he was amazing at how he loved to pitch. And, and right – I mean, he died in his 80s, 90s, I think, early 90s. Um, and, you know, he, he, was, he was talking baseball and loving baseball right up until he unfortunately passed away. But uh, I'm not surprised that Bob Feller – said that to your brother who i'm sure was just shocked especially at that age to have this this person say those things to him about your grandfather but but no bob feller was great and uh, just just like this great game of baseball which a lot of people right now we we talked last week of how 
people now are getting a chance to relive some of the great memories of the past, and that's because baseball has that great past history to be able to have people look at right now. So going back to Dick Williams telling you to learn the pitching staff in 10 days, I mean, how hard was it? You only used like seven pitchers in the year. <laughs> well, my first game, I, I loved it. I, I showed up at Rendezvous, and, and Charlie Finley, and, and I should have known something there, but you know, Charlie said, hey, you got to get up here because you know, we're going to take pictures. And when I, I said, okay, so I hurried up and got there, and that's when Dick Williams said, pictures, my you-know-what. And he says, you're catching this staff. My first guy was Catfish Hunter. Tony, I didn't break a sweat. I caught him for five innings, 15 batters. He was getting ready for the opener. And I said, you got to be kidding me. I just left the team. And, you know, nothing against the tribe. You know, we just had pitchers that weren't as adept at throwing strikes as guys like Catfish Hunter and Kenny Holtzman, Vida Bloom, Blue Moon Odom, and Raleigh Fingers. And so there weren't that many needed beyond those five that I just mentioned. Uh, but it, it was great because the simplicity of pitching – and they showed me exactly what it's like to pitch and to be successful. And, again, I remember asking Catfish Hunter in 1992. It was the 25th anniversary of the A's in Oakland. And I think you might have played his interview last summer when I had, unfortunately, some time off. But, anyway, uh, the thing I asked Catfish, and maybe didn't play during that time, but I said, how many pitches does a pitcher need to be successful? He said, one the fastball. If you can locate your fastball, then you don't need anything else. And the thing that I learned about those teams, uh, those those pitchers on that staff, they all had excellent fastballs. And Tony, we didn't have to throw in much of anything else to have success because they had tremendous control. And that was at a time before the Quest Techs and all the valuation of the umpires, where if a pitcher had good control, and there were more than just the staff of the Oakland A's, I remember just watching just recently uh, Greg Maddox, the Hall of Famer, and the movement on his fastball and, and, and how catchers could set up outside maybe four or five inches, hit the target, it's called a strike, because the reputation of the pitcher. Well, Catfish and Vida and Holtzman and Blue Moon and, and Raleigh, all these guys had a great reputation to the point that if somebody came up and I was off the plate, they'd hit the target, boom, strike. What's the hitter going to do? Tell me, I experienced that when I went back to Cleveland after the fact. Because I said, wait a minute, those on strikes, and the umpire said, swing the bat, they're strikes. Well, I knew they weren't, but I also realized that the two previous years, the three previous years, I was able to do that. But, um, Tony, fastball, if you can locate it, look at Bartolo Colon. When he was with the White Sox, he started throwing nothing but fastballs, and he had changed a little speeds off of it. But the four quadrants of a strike zone, up and in, up and away, down and in, down and away. You have four quadrants of the strike zone. If you can hit those four, that's like having four pitches, but it's done with one pitch. So for, for people listening and, and kids who think that, well, oh, I have to throw a slider or a curveball, if you can throw a fastball and a changeup, you're changing speeds off your fastball, you can have success because I've seen pitchers at the major league level do exactly that. You know, Dallas Braden, who I'm working with now on NBC Sports California, his last game he pitched against the Detroit Tigers on a Saturday night at the Coliseum, he, that was after his perfect game, probably around 2011, 12, whatever it was. But he threw nothing but fastballs and change-ups and won the game. So here's a guy who, you know, in that category, Kenny Holtzman, who I caught through 110 pitches against the Orioles in a league championship series game, one curveball, the rest fastballs, and batting practice fastballs, he won the game against the Baltimore Orioles. Proof that, you know, 110 pitches, you can go nine innings. 
why would you mess around with curves and sliders and other pitches get to the point where you're going to be out in five innings with 100 pitches? If you do throw the fastball, I think it's a great pitch to throw. If you have command of the one pitch, you're going to have success. You know, I, I've been seeing you know, people are doing a lot of list right now as, as we're bored. And you mentioned Kenny Holtzman. And when I see these all-time Oakland A's list and they don't have Kenny Holtzman on it, I'm like, like people have forgotten or they just don't know. It's like you need to go check out this left-hander yeah. in 13 postseason games, 12 starts, had a 2.30 ERA, and in the World Series, Ken Holtzman was 4-1 and one with a 2.55 ERA. No disrespect to Barry Zito, Mark Mulder, Tim Hudson. Uh, they should not be on this list when we talk all-time A's pitchers. You've got Catfish as a Hall of Famer, Vida was an, an MVP, and Ken Holtzman was nothing but a winner in some of the biggest games in baseball history. And the one thing you're missing, he could hit. His batting average, I mean, he had home run. I mean, he was hitting doubles and home runs because he was a great hitter. Catfish was a great hitter. So were Vida and, and Blue Moon Odom. That was before the DH. But, no, to your point, he was – but, see, Kenny Holtzman was never one uh, who, who wanted all the acclaim. And not I, I'm not saying Catfish did or Vida or any of the other ones, but Kenny Holtzman, I, I saw something recently when he, he was in a Yankee uniform, and the comment was, you know, he was always – Sour and I said, what are, you, "What are you talking about?" You know, Kenny Holtzman walked away from a contract with the Yankees to get a seat on the uh, stock exchange. I think it was in St. Louis, and walked away from a contract in baseball. So he didn't stick around, but he pitched no hitters. I saw him pitch a game against the Tigers, the Coliseum. Tom Verizer hit a ball to left center, and it's about at the top of the eighth inning. Instead of the ball being caught easily, the wind took it, and the center fielder didn't go after it, and it dropped. He said, no big deal. We won the game. You know, that's all that matters. It was a one-hitter. Should have been another no-hitter. But, no, he was a tremendous pitcher. His philosophy, I always loved him. I called him Pow. I said, hey, Pow, how you doing? He said, we're going to be out of here in an hour and a half, no matter what, win or lose. And that's why he would, he would shake off throw overs to first base. I'd call a curveball. He'd shake it off. Cause I said, why do you do that? He said, because – they're not going to swing at it, and it takes too much time. So what a great philosophy. 20-game winner in 73, one of three with Catfish and Vida and Kenny Holtzman. The last time, by the way, that's ever been done by starting staff to have three 20-game winners on the same staff. But his, his philosophy was, hey, here comes, hit it. I've got great defense behind me. Let's go. Let's play the game and win. And he was great. But I, I'm glad you brought him up because I agree with you. Uh, yes, they're Mulder and Hudson or Mulder and Zito, two lefties, and other lefties, but uh, Kenny Holtzman was at the top of the list. And I will always like him for this main reason. When, when the, we lost Catfish Hunter after the 74 season, I became a free agent because of the contract, uh, something with, with Charlie. But Kenny I mean, that, I mean, that's when Charlie changed. That's when Claudel Washington played left, Joe DeRude had played first, uh, Gino was catching, and Charlie said, hey, you got to go to the bullpen. I'm sorry. And so – but the one thing that Kenny Holtzman always said to Alvin Dark, he said, when I pitch, I want Ray behind the plate. And I went, wow. That, that made me feel great, that he respected me enough that he wanted me behind the plate to catch him. And I, I think that was uh, something that I'll always remember about him. Not that I won't remember about the rest of them because they were all great, but that's something that Kenny did at a time when I wasn't playing that much. But when he pitched, he said, I want Ray to, to catch me, which was nice. You know, we're pre we've been previewing uh... – teams and we're, we started uh, last Monday with the National League West 
and we ended the West today with the Dodgers. And, you know, I don't know if you were at that game at spring training. Were you out there when the, when the A's played the Dodgers? Were you working that yes, day? Yes, I was. I wasn't and, working, but I was there, yeah. Yeah, there was, there was a feeling. I talked to Bob Nightingale of the USA Today yeah. and Ken Rosenthal, and they were – of the athletic and they were like, Hey, this could be like the world series preview. And of course you played against them in the world series in 1974, where they had that unbelievable infield. They had great players. And of course uh, you broadcasted when they, uh, the A's lost in 88. So there's some history. What was it like playing against that Dodger team? Cause that Dodger team was loaded in 74. <laughs> we, we played the Orioles, and, you know, with Charlie, we didn't make a lot of money. Nobody did during that time because, again, um, arbitration had just come into to play, uh, no free agency. So I remember after we beat the Orioles that we flew straight into Los Angeles from Baltimore to start the World Series. And I'll never forget Dick Green and I walking by and said, look at all these box seats. This is going to be a great World Series share. We're going to win this thing and get a lot of money. I think it was 23000 at the time when, you know, people will say, well, that's a lot of money. Yeah, it was. But it was great to play them because to be able to beat them in five games and use only five pitchers in the World Series, that's it. Five pitchers in the entire five-game World Series. For Catfish Hunter to get a save in game one after Kenny Holtzman started, went four and a third innings. Uh, Raleigh came in as the closer. Remember, he's a closer. He came in in the fifth inning. He pitched four and a third inning. Catfish Hunter came in in the ninth inning with two outs and struck out Joe Ferguson to get the save. So the A's used three pitchers in that one game, but those same three pitchers pitched the rest of the four games, and we ultimately beat the Dodgers in five games at the Coliseum and after winning three straight and uh, three straight wins at the Coliseum against the Dodgers after splitting down there. But you remember, and I'm sure you did, and, and we offer our condolences to the uh, Jimmy Wynn family, who unfortunately he just passed away recently, but he was playing center field for the Dodgers. And in game two, uh, Sal Bando was at third and a fly ball was hit the center field and unfortunately Jimmy Wynn did not have a strong arm so we're thinking alright Captain Sal is going to score a run here comes Joe Ferguson who was a catcher playing right field with a very very strong arm Steve Yeager was catching and here comes Ferguson in front of Jimmy Wynn and I know A's fans can remember this he cut in front took the ball and threw a perfect strike not one hop but a perfect strike to Steve Yeager and at the time when you could run over catchers Sal Bandle did. Yeager held on to the baseball. One of the most dramatic, exciting plays I've ever seen. But to see Ferguson cut in front of Jimmy Wynn like he did, I mean, that was pretty special. But you're right. They had the great uh, team of, of Garvey at first, uh, Davey Lopes, Bill Russell, uh, Bill Russell, and then uh, Ron Say. That was a time when they had an infield that was good. They were great. And I remember the Orioles had a similar one with Boog Powell, Dave Johnson, Mark Belanger, and Brooks Robinson. And I say that because when you see, just like with Marcus Simeon working with Profar last spring, he worked with him in spring training. So you can imagine if you have four infielders that everybody knows where everybody's playing. So you don't have to work on a lot of different things like Simeon did with Profar in spring training. So that's one of the differences. And to have that defensive infield of the Dodgers and their pitching staff with Don Sutton uh, leading the pack, you know, and then to beat them in five games, there's nothing better as far as I was concerned, and especially to see and hear Charlie Finley say to us before game five, he's already planned the parade for the next day, and we beat them in, uh, you know, and unfortunately, again, a late Billy Buckner tried to stretch a, a sure double into a triple, 
and a great relay from Reggie to Dick Green to Sal Bando thwarted that in the latter part of the game. So, you know, it was a great series, but it was great to win. And, you know, Dodger, you know, Tommy Lasorda, they, they, they said, hey, you know, we're going to win it because uh, uh, the Mets thought they were going to win. The Reds thought they were going to win. The A's ended up winning all three. But I think that series for me personally was great because I had, <clears throat> excuse me, broken up a fight in the, in the summer and I came back and played in the postseason against the Orioles and, and hit a home run off of Grant Jackson and then a home run off Don Sutton. And he threw at me later in the no-timers game. But, but it was a lot of fun, you know, to come back from – <laughs> from from neck surgery that Dr. Charles Wilson uh, took out some bone chips of my six seven vertebrae and uh, I was able to play again and I mean it, it was just a great year for me and the, the unfortunate thing though Tony was losing Catfish Hunter after that series because it was just like you know sure we thought we could win in seventy five but Catfish was the guy that we turned to and, and we knew that he was the leader he started every first game of every postseason he did it against the Dodgers because he won the game in Baltimore to get us to the World Series in 74 but then he ended up pitching uh, in the World Series as he did but also uh, picking up the save in game one but you know that was those were great teams and, and I give Sal Bando a lot of credit he was the captain and he was quoted as one of these where are they now segments and he said he thought the 74 team was one of the best teams in baseball ever and that's quite a compliment coming from Sal Bando. So it's, uh, it was fun. It was the third of three. And unfortunately, a little bit of a drought to 89. Not so much then, but definitely to now. So that's why I thought this year, going into this year, it was going to be one that maybe it could be the first at least appearance. And what you said about uh, Bob Nightingale, it is Bob, right? Because yeah. right? you, you were interviewing him. And I walked upstairs in the tunnel heading upstairs uh, to, the, to the press box. And he said, this is the game today. And just like you said, he said, I have both of them winning their leagues and playing in the World Series and have the A's coming out on top. That's quite a, a recommendation, quite a, a, a thing to be said by someone of his notoriety. And he's covered a lot of baseball. And, uh, you know, it could still happen. And, and, I, I, and I believe strongly there's going to be baseball, just a question of how much. We have to all be safe and, uh, and secure. But I think everybody's looking forward to baseball. And I hope, like everybody else, that it does happen. Did you say Don Sutton threw at you in an old-timers game? <laughs> it was 1987, I think. It was my second year broadcasting, and we had an old-timer. They used to call him the equitable old-timers game. And uh, Don Sutton was in an A's uniform in the visiting dugout. And I thought that was a little strange. But, yeah, he, you know, he was part of the, the Dodgers World Series and all that. And um, so I came up to hit, and it called time. And Sutton came out. And he pitched. He threw one pitch. He threw it over my head. And I said, what are you doing? He says, that's for 1974. I said, Don, get over it. That's 13 years ago. <laughs> so he threw one pitch, threw it over my head, walked off the mound, went back to the dugout, and that was it. But, uh, you know, that's, that's how, you know, pitchers always remember who hit them and how well they did against them, whether they got them out or they hit home runs. Well, in this particular case, Don Sutton remembered me hitting a hanging curve off of him with my 067 no knob bat, big handle, big uh, barrel, and I hit it down the left field line, hanging curveball, crushed it. And uh, Joe Rudy hit one a little bit later against Mike Marshall, who a fan, somebody had thrown a smoke bomb. And you weren't even born in 75, were you? Or four? Yeah, I, was born, I, was, I was born in 72. All right, so you were, you were a mere baby, a child. But uh, someone threw a smoke bomb left field, Joe Rudy was hitting Mike Marshall, who studied kinesiology, got his degree, his master's in kinesiology. He would not throw a pitch. 
and he finally threw a first pitch to Joe Rudy, hit a home run. And so instead of taking warm-up tosses, because the smoke bomb and the smoke had to have lasted anywhere from six to eight minutes. So there's a lot of time in between pitches, but he was out there manipulating his right shoulder, his right arm, uh, keeping it loose because of his, his study of kinesiology. And first pitch he threw to Rudy, Joe took it in deep to left field. And, uh, you know, another one-run game won by the Athletics. Von Joshua grounds out to Raleigh Fingers and throws to first base and the A's World Champions again. So it's a, it's a memory that uh, – great memory. And, and that's why – you know, Tony, did you see that quote about Kurt Schilling, what he said about the A's fans in Oakland? Yeah. Did you see that? That's, that's horrible. I mean, the A's are the best fans in baseball. And if, they, they, if a visiting player doesn't like – Something said, and you know he played for the Red Sox. You talk about somebody, some places that are bad. The Red, I mean, Boston, they sell out all the time, but they're not choir boys. You know, they sit back and you know they'll let you have it as well. So I was a little disappointed because I want all the A's fans to know that they are the best in baseball. It's the loudest at the Coliseum, and when you have visiting players saying, "Man, this is loud," and it is loud, and because the A's have the best fans, so don't let the article, if you read it by Kurt Schilling, disappoint you because. Kurt sometimes says some things that shouldn't be said, and I think that was one of them. But uh, A's fans are great, just like you and Cody are great. Foss, be well, be safe, and we will talk to you next Wednesday. And you and Cody have this uh, social distancing, what, about how many miles? Uh, Probably about about three (laughs) miles from each other. Yeah, it's about three miles, Foss. (laughs) Oh, you guys are great. Listen, I'm glad you're back talking baseball because – you know, fans want it, and it is, it's, a, it's a disappointing time, but we just have to keep the faith. And you know what? I, I do want to say before we close this out that Dave Stewart, the great Dave Stewart, uh, I, I did talk to him, and fortunately he did not have the coronavirus, which I think is great. And I talked to him in the seclusion, the quarantine and all that, but, uh, you know, he, he was cleared of it, which is great. I think it's outstanding because uh, when we – Hope and pray for Webster Garrison, too, that, uh, you know, all things are good for him. So it is something that we all should be concerned about. But uh, baseball is something that bring everybody back. And we've seen it in World War II. We've seen it through the, uh, the time when uh, 9-11. I mean, just, just so many great times that baseball has brought this country back. And I think it's going to do it again, hopefully sooner than later. But uh, we just have to all be safe. And I know that that's exactly what's happening right now throughout the country and throughout the world. Everybody needs to do exactly what they should be doing. Well said. We'll talk to you next Wednesday. Tony, you're good. Cody, you're outstanding. Keep doing a great job. Look forward to talking to you again. Rob, thanks for coming on A's Cast Live again. Hey, my pleasure, guys. Hey, you know, I've always wanted to ask you, when did you come up with the name Pitching Ninja? Because anytime, like, we think ninja, <laughs> people love it. Like, where, where, where did you come up with that? Uh, dude, I mean, I, it was probably, like, uh, oh, six years ago, maybe. But it's mostly because um, my – actually, I think my son's nickname started out as a ninja because he's half Japanese. My wife is, is Japanese, and we decided – and I decided, you know what? He didn't like it, so I kind of liked it. And as a coach, I get the choice. Yeah, no, no, it's uh, it's definitely catchy, and I, I, we, we've we've been talking about it on the show, and obviously they have a lot of your stuff in there on MLB right now. When we're talking about the, you know, the 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 best fastball, the best curveball, the best changeup, the best slider. I mean, this is something you've been doing a long time. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I uh, and actually, I just noticed that they were using it the other day. I was looking for uh, change-ups and saw my own stuff, so I thought that was that was cool. It's always cool to see your own stuff out there. No, it's great promotion for you, and and I and, and for we just had Jared Diamond on from Wall Street Journal, and he's got a new book out, and he was talking about you know hitting today is so tough because you're facing a lot of different pitchers. Everybody's bringing nasty stuff at you. Everybody's coming out of the bullpen, super high velocity. What have you seen in the change working with pitchers and watching just watching pitching evolve into such velocity? Oh, it's it's absolutely ridiculous now. And by the way, I just started Jared's book, and it's it's fantastic. It's about all the people that. Um, as I was going up through the coaching ranks, was following, so it was kind of fun to see his his view on it, his take on it. He's, he's kind of dead on. But the stuff now, I don't know how anybody hits it. I mean, I think that's probably the biggest takeaway from videos is not only I'm trying to educate pitchers um, and help them get better, trying to educate fans, but I'm also trying to educate hitting basically fans that go to stadiums and and how hard it is to hit. Because it's like a tiny miracle anytime anybody gets a hit these days. Uh, and, you know, fans, I think, when they see the stuff that I do, end up saying, wow, I'm not going to yell at any hitters anymore. Like, why did you swing at that? Uh, they see that it's kind of impossible. And I'm just wondering, is, is it just the evolution of a hitter that from the time you're in Little League all the way through high school, into college or into pro ball that you just adjust as an athlete, they're throwing harder, but to you, that's the norm. You've been seeing it your entire life. Cause I think back in the day, like when Nolan Ryan was pumping gas, everybody was like, Oh my God. But now everybody right. throws it. Is it just the hitters have evolved and they're just used to it? Um, a lot of it is that um, hitters have definitely evolved. They see it. I mean, cause there's such a premium on, on velocity. But it's also just general stuff. I mean, you see the stuff, and it's not just the speed of it. It's the ball's moving, um, and it's not the ball's fault. It's, it's the evolution of pitching and the use of technology to improve pitchers and improve spin axis, spin rates, um, and to judge pitchers by more than just velocity. So it's a combination of things, but it certainly makes the hitters have to make decisions later. But hitters are also trained better, too. I mean, you know, they get to... There's video, there's, uh, there's things that simulate pitches coming in. They're bigger, stronger, faster. Uh, there's a, it's a combination of things, but it's like a, I mean, it's an arms race between hitters and pitchers, and it's crazy. I mean, the talent out there is, is phenomenal. I'm wondering with all the research you do, because we know some pitchers, they were like, this ball's different. It's not the same. It doesn't move the same. And it affected some guys last year. And it seemed to affect guys, especially who have the nasty two-seamer or that they can throw it really hard, but they get a lot of a lot of movement down. I think of the guy we had, uh, Blake Trinan. He didn't want to he didn't want to admit it to us, but we he he knew the ball was different. Could you tell by what you do with your technology that the baseball was different in 2019? You know, I can tell from the results. Uh, it's it's hard to tell specifically because you're talking about maybe you know an inch or two of movement. So it's it's you know, some pitches seem flatter, but there's some folks that were that were just plain nasty too. So 
You know, I, I can't say for sure. I can say for sure talking to pitchers, though. I mean, pitchers definitely noticed it. And, uh, you know, there, there was a, a, a big difference, and a big difference in the effect of the ball off the bat, too. So when you play with seam height, you're, you know, it, it, it affects every little part of the game from the aerodynamics of the ball, um, from the pitching standpoint as well as the hitting standpoint. And we can talk about how guys thought the ball was different in the playoffs. And then, you know, I know they call anecdotal evidence in spring training, but these these guys, this is what they do for a living. They know the equipment. They talked about this spring training that the ball was maybe de-juiced that they were using down in Arizona and Florida. Yep, I've, I've heard the same thing. You know, they just need to standardize it. We shouldn't even be having this conversation because it should be so, it, somewhat standard. Obviously, there's there's whenever you have man-made stuff, there's going to be variations, right? I mean, you get a couch, leather couch, someone sews it. There's every once in a while, it seems different. But there can be better quality control that it doesn't vary from year to year, that it doesn't change. You know, in, in a lot of other sports, it doesn't really matter. In baseball, records are kind of, you know, sacrosanct. And it, it passes down through the years, and you want the game to be somewhat the same. And for us to be having discussions about the baseball means that baseball isn't doing its job. They've got to be consistent and not have fans discussing the ball, but have fans discussing the performance on the field. And uh, I think they're, they're finally figuring out that I don't, I don't know that they did it on purpose or not. It doesn't sound like it. Um, it sounds like it was just quality control. People got better, actually, at their jobs and, and, and had the seams. They, I've, I've heard this from people in Costa Rica, that they had people that were better at their jobs, that, that they, they sewed it tighter, because as you get more experience, you're better at it. And it just happened that that year was better. It sounded reasonably plausible, but you should be able to measure that stuff. It's just like the golf ball. You know, all of a sudden, ball pro V's are, are flying further than ever before because they were making right. the golf ball better. It's just a reality. I want to go through the process, though. What is it like for you when a, a big leaguer or someone, uh, you know, a minor leaguer, professional getting paid, how does it work? Do they call you up? How do they get involved with you? Take us through that process. You know, basically, so most of the stuff that I'm doing is, you know, I, I do it off game feeds. I'll, I'll have some players uh, DM me or text me with, with content if they want to get stuff out there. Friends with a few uh, major league players that, you know, like to give insights to fans about what they're doing, maybe give bullpens behind the scenes. So definitely have that aspect of it. Um, I have fans that, I mean, I, I read all my notifications, so I'm constantly watching what's out there. Uh, I'm always taking feedback from anybody. I mean, if somebody sees something cool, I will get on it or look for, you know, constantly look for stuff too. But a lot of times, yeah, I mean, players will, generally it's a, it's a text or a DM they'll, they'll give me and say, hey, what do you think about this? And maybe ask me some questions about their, their pitches, ask me for other pitchers' pitch grips so that they can see what, what guys that they like are doing. Um, yeah, it's a variety of things, and it's kind of fun. You know, we, we asked you to look at some of the A's pitchers. Which pitcher really stands out to you, or what, what pitch of a pitcher? What really stands out when you, when you review the A's staff? Um, I would say, I mean, the Jesus Lizard is probably my favorite A's pitcher. I think he's going to be a, I mean, he's just going to be a stud for years and years. Uh, overpowering stuff and kind of off the charts in terms of movement. Both his slider and his his uh, his two seamer 
are are just filthy. Um, I guess he calls some kind of calls a slider a hard curveball, whatever it is, it's nasty. Um, so he, I'm a big fan of of his stuff in in general. Um, I, I mean, Puck is going to be fantastic as well. Uh, I think you guys are set up for a long term, long time uh, with with really really nasty pitchers. You know, when I think about our, our young guys that you mentioned, you know, AJ Puck and Jesus Lazardo, and, and and I think about this for all young guys in the game, is if we are going to have a shortened season. I don't think we need to have these inning limits. I don't think we need, you know, we're, we're so used to babying these young guys. Do you get the sense if we have a shorter season that you can just tell these young guys, let her rip and let's go? You know, I think this is going to be really interesting. And this is where actually the, the training staff, strength and conditioning folks make their living as well as the pitching coaches. Everybody's got to be in tune and making sure that, um, I think I heard Garrett Cole uh, use the analogy, but say the, the pilot light stays on during this, this downtime, that you're ready to go as soon as, the, you, know, as, as, soon as you get the all-clear sign. Um, because if you, if you ramp up too soon, that's where injuries happen. I mean, just think about you, if you're sitting on the couch and then you decide to sprint, you're probably going to get hurt. So a lot of injuries happen in spring training for that reason, and players have got to just make sure they're maintaining uh, well, as well as they can during this during this downtime. But yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a sprint. It's and and I mean, I don't know that inning limits are going to come into play if you're if you're if you're not playing, you know, more than what 100 games or something, uh, 60 games, whatever it comes down to be, it's a sprint. And yeah, I think that that they're going to be having to be ready to go. And it's going to be fun. I mean, I think it'll be fun no matter how long the season is. I'm just ready for some baseball. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. You know, Billy Bean, uh, in an interview I did with him one time, said that if you could prevent Tommy John surgery, if you could figure that out, you'd be a billionaire. So you work with all these guys, you work with pitchers. You went, what? What do you think the answer is to that? To figure out how to keep guys from so many guys getting Tommy John surgery. See, if I told you that I'm not going to be a billionaire, <laughs> so I got to keep it to myself. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, it's going to be a combination of things. I don't think there's any one answer because the human body's different and it varies on, from pitcher to pitcher. Some guys, mechanics could be putting extra strain on their arm. But I think most of all, it, I mean, it's, it's likely a combination of conditioning, um, making sure that we don't ramp up too soon as far as, like, uh, you know, having a pitcher throw gas right away. I think there's there's ways. I mean, it's just like you, again, you're trying to run a sprint without ever having to do it. You're more likely to get hurt. Anytime you redline something, things might break. But the key is to make it is to work a combination of strength and conditioning work, uh, long toss, weighted balls actually have a place in that, um, but not overdoing it too, because we're all pushing for performance. We're pushing for max effort. Uh, max performance on every pitch, not like in the old days where you used to be able to, you know, kind of ramp up. Nobody, you know, you, strikeouts were fascist. You didn't go for strikeouts. You tried to get them to put the ball in play. Um, I think now strikeouts are at a premium because ball in play can be ball out, out of play real quick over the fence, and you've got to be going for strikeouts. So everybody's, you know, kind of pushing their body to the limit. So it's a combination of preparing really, really well and uh, and – staying in shape, 
Um, you see people like Max Scherzer actually throws year-round. Trevor Bauer throws year-round. I think there's start, we started the baby pitchers a lot and thinking that less was better. But then when they, it was time to perform, they weren't ready for that workload. So there's, there's a fine line, and I think it's going to be a combination of using the, today's technology, uh, motion capture type stuff to look at mechanics, uh, things like the modus sleeve to look at load on the arm. There's going to be a whole bunch of different things. Um, I don't think there's going to be one silver bullet. Hey, we always appreciate the time. Thank you for coming on and, and keep entertaining us on Twitter because we all need uh, as much baseball as we possibly can get. Be safe and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Well, it's an absolute honor to have the voice of the Chicago Cubs. And I've been waiting for this for a long time because we're both San Jose State guys. We both uh, radio, television, film. Pat Hughes joins us here on A's Cast Live. Pat, thank you so much for taking the time today. Talk a little Cubs baseball, but also bringing you back home. <laughs> Good to be on with you, Chris. And, you know, it's it's true that we are both from the Bay Area. I, I wonder if uh, the uh, fact that we were exposed to such great announcers as young people has anything to do with it. I think it might. Um, when I think about the Bay Area of my youth, you had Russ Hodges and Lon Simmons, both Hall of Famers on Giants games. You had the great Bill King on the Oakland A's later. Bill also did the Raiders and the Warriors. Um, Hank Greenwald was excellent. There, there were just so many great announcers in the Bay Area, and I think that's one reason why so many of us have gone on uh, into the business and had decent careers. And not only that for you, but some of the legends that you've worked with when I think of like Harry Carey and Bob Euchre and these guys, I mean, you've been around and worked with some of the greatest voices that sports has, has ever had here in this country. Well, and Al McGuire and I were yep. the basketball announcing team for Marquette Television for about six years. Uh, and then Ron Sato, the late great uh, Hall of Fame third baseman of the Cubs, he and I partnered up for 15 years every day on Cubs radio. Uh, Euchre and I worked for 12 years together in Milwaukee on radio, and Harry Carey uh, shared a booth with us many times in the two years uh, after I joined the Cubs before he passed. So I, I just hope that some of all that greatness, Chris, has rubbed off on me. I'm not sure if it has, but I hope it has. Uh, you've had a great career. There's no question about it. And I think of you know, Cubs baseball, the tradition of the Chicago Cubs, going to Wrigley Field every single day. It's the Midwest and the sun comes out and everybody truly appreciates it. It's a really, really special place. What is it like being the voice of one of the great American sports franchises? It's a privilege. It's an absolute privilege to, to have uh, this prominent position uh, I do eight innings on radio of play-by-play -play of the Cubs every single game. For a long time, I did all nine innings, but uh, in my advancing years, I get one inning off per game, which is nice. But it's, it's an absolute uh, pleasure. Uh, I am honored to, to have this job. Uh, just getting to cover the Cubs-Cardinals games, for example, every year, 19 of those. What a great rivalry. And the atmosphere at Wrigley and over at Bush Stadium in St. Louis, you, you can't match that. I tell people that there are so many beautiful new ballparks all over Major League Baseball, and yet the atmosphere is something that you cannot build. A stadium 
or a ballpark either has atmosphere or it does not. And I would say that Wrigley Field really is right at the top of the list in terms of atmosphere on a nice summer day or a nice warm summer evening with a good ball game and maybe a pennant race going on. There's just that unmistakable buzz of excitement and anticipation in the stands virtually every single day. It's amazing. Yeah, it is a magical place. And it's one of those, when you look at Fenway Park or you look at Wrigley Field, you tell baseball fans, or whether it's the Baseball Hall of Fame, there's certain places you need to go and experience, and you're absolutely going to love it. And the atmosphere outside the ballpark's incredible. And Chicago, what a great city. And before we get into this year's team, you know, every we've had whether it's the Red Sox or the Cubs these these curses, right? That they that they can't win, and there's all when when the team finally broke through and won the World Series. What was the experience like in Illinois, in Chicago, and obviously the Cubs are are such a they're a national team. But what was that finally winning the World Series and you calling that? What was that like? It was the highlight of my career, no question about it. Uh, it was amazingly exciting. Um, you know, people were asking me because Ron Santo passed in the year 2010, and uh, he and I had a, a fairly popular partnership together. And a lot of people were saying, well, were you thinking about Ron Santo during Game 7 of the World Series? I said, well, yes, I did, but I think about Ron every day anyway. He and I were good friends. We were good partners for 15 years, so I think about Ron Santo every day uh, in the season or out. I was also thinking of people like Ernie Banks and Harry Carey and Jack Brickhouse, the two Hall of Fame announcers that used to call Cubs games. But really, Chris, I was also thinking about the millions of Cub fans who never got to see the team win a World Series because they had passed on. Uh, you're talking about 108 years going back to 1908. And from a broadcasting standpoint, I was greatly honored to be the first Cubs broadcaster to ever say the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. Because if you think about it, there was no baseball on the radio back in 1908. There was no television uh, at that time either. So I, I, was, uh, I was greatly honored and thrilled to be part of it. Um, and, you know, I did not make the greatest call that's ever been made, but I wanted to be under control, and I was, I was pleased with it, but... Um, it was it was nerve-wracking. The Game 7 was a, a remarkable cliffhanger. It went 10 innings, and it went back and forth, back and forth. And it was just edge-of-the-seat drama, and it's something I'll never forget. And then a couple of days later, I was honored to be the master of ceremonies at the Cubs rally downtown Chicago. And you, you probably read about this, but you had to be there to believe it. On the, on the parade route from Wrigley Field to a place called Grant Park, which is downtown Chicago, it's about, I don't know, five, seven miles, something like that. They estimated, reporters estimated, there were five million people on the parade route between the ballpark and Grant Park. Five million people. And we were told that it was the seventh highest attended event in human history. And this goes back, they were, they were talking about other events like pilgrimages to Mecca way, way back centuries ago. Um, so just to be part of that was amazing. And then 
the actual audience at Grant Park where they held the rally, and again, I was the master of ceremonies, so I was going to introduce all of the ball players and kind of get the program going. And I talked to one of the guys on the stage right before it began, and I could not believe how many people were out there. It was an ocean of humanity, as far as you could see. And I said, hey, man, how many, how many people do you think are here today? And he looked out there and he said, well, we had a, we had a, a Rolling Stones concert here a few years ago, and we had, I don't know, he, he named some other musical acts. He said, but I've never seen a crowd this big. He says, I'll bet we have about 900,000 people here. <laughs> 900,000. Now, Chris, if you were to be at, uh, say, a pro football game and, and the stadium held 80,000 people and you had the responsibility of delivering some kind of a speech at halftime in front of 80,000, you'd be a little bit nervous. There'd be a little uh, number of butterflies in your system. When the guy said 900,000, I just laughed because, <laughs> I mean, 80,000, 90,000, yeah, you might be a little uptight. 900, you just say, forget about it. Let's go and have some fun. And, and I knew that the audience wanted to have fun. The Cubs had just won the World Series two days before. Uh, I don't remember exactly what I said, but we had fun, and, and that is by far the largest audience that I've ever addressed uh, in my career. But so many memories, so much fun, so much excitement. I'm just, I'm just so pleased that I got to be a part of it all. Yeah, it's funny. Nine hundred thousand. He's not even close. It's five million. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everywhere you, you, you would go around the corner. We were on these double-decker buses, and I was on the top. I had my wife and my youngest daughter was with us, and. Uh, Every time you'd go around the corner, these people would would stand up and they'd give you this uh, standing ovation, and there would be like thirty people deep everywhere. And then you'd think, well, that that's going to be the end of it. Then you'd go around the corner, and they'd be fifty people deep. And then you'd go around another corner, and there'd be a hundred people deep. There would be people up in windows and and hanging out of office buildings. The whole city shut down. And I'll tell you what is really special. That day, there was not one single arrest. Not one out of five million people misbehaved to the point where they had to be arrested. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? That is, I mean, the, the story just gives me chills. It's uh, absolutely incredible. And I'm so happy that you got to experience something I, uh, like that because that's uh, a once-in-a-lifetime kind of deal for a broadcaster. And then... Now looking at the 2020 Chicago Cubs. So they win 103 games in 2016, win the World Series. They've been chasing to win a World Series since. Um, where are the Chicago Cubs in 2020? Because there's been, a, I mean, obviously a change in manager. Uh, Theo Epstein has talked about changes to the lineup when we still think there's a lot of talent there. Uh, Chris Bryant's future, we're not sure. What are your expectations for 2020? Well, I, I hope we have a season. That that would be, first of all, Chris, this is a very uh, unusual time with the coronavirus and the pandemic and people dying and hospitalizations all over the place. We've got to get this in the rearview mirror, whether it's some brilliant scientist uh, or a doctor coming up with a vaccine. I don't know how long that's going to take, but boy, we could sure use one right about now. And, and I know that biology takes time. 
longer than you want, but uh, I, I hate to see all this suffering. So that would be the first thought. I hope there's baseball, and I hope it's not uh, in the too distant future. But let's just assume that maybe around June or, or thereabouts that there will be some baseball in some form. I think the Cubs are going to be very good. I think David Ross is going to be an excellent manager. He was part of the World Series team. He hit a home run, by the way, in Game 7 for the Cubs against the Indians, Andrew Miller. But he's going to be a good skipper. And we still have a nucleus of offensive players, and they're also defensive players. But think of this nucleus. You've got Anthony Rizzo, Chris Bryant, Javier Baez, Kyle Schwarber, and Wilson Contreras. These guys are all-stars. They really are. They can carry the team, all of them, when they get hot with the bat. They can carry a team for a week or ten days. I can't really think of another team that has that many high-powered offensive players in their lineup on a daily basis. Now, having said that, baseball, as we all know, comes down to pitching, and the teams that pitch the best generally win the most games. Uh, that I'm not quite as confident as I am in our offense and the ability to score runs and hit home runs. Um, we have a decent rotation. The bullpen would be a question mark. Craig Kimbrell was signed to a big contract in the middle of the year last season, and he struggled. Uh, here's a number that jumps out at you, Chris. He gave up nine home runs in 20 innings of pitching, and for a closer, uh, home runs, uh, home runs, and base on balls are the two things you want to always avoid. Uh, so he lost a lot of games. He he suffered uh, several blown saves. Uh, so how well Craig Kimbrell pitches? I don't know. This year he's got to pitch better than he did a year ago to uh, to get the Cubs back on track. But uh, overall, uh, I, I think um, the team is going to be competitive. We've got this uh, unbelievable fan base. They always offer great support, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. I, again, I think David Ross will be a terrific manager. Well, yeah, I, I, I look at your players too, and I, the people thinking that the Cubs are not, are, you know, not going to be that good. I'm like, they got too much talent, and, and the National League is going to be very competitive. But once this season gets going, it's going to be a lot of fun. Pat, I can't tell you how much. I appreciate you coming on during these times, and I've looked forward to this interview for a long time. I knew at some point our our past would would, would connect, and it's great catching up with you. Nice meeting you, and uh, be safe. And hopefully, we'll talk to you during the regular season. Well, I'm I'm happy to do it, Chris. Now, what would you like to discuss in our second hour? Uh, you want to go into a little, uh, <laughs> I would love to go into like the history of your career because your career is incredible. <laughs> I'm just making a living like everyone else. Take care and be safe. Thanks, Chris. Thanks very much. You did a very nice job with this today. You know, we always appreciate you coming on here on A's Cast Live. And, of course, Cody and I loved your one-hit wonders. Uh, that had to be a lot of fun to do that list. Well, uh, yeah, I have a lot of time to dig into these research projects right now, uh, unfortunately, but the research is kind of fun, you know, digging into uh, baseball history. So, yeah, I appreciate the kind words. It was, it was fun to do. Yeah, and, and, you know, Mitchell Page, going back, I mean, because some of these guys, for my audience, a lot of these people don't remember baseball back in the 70s or even the, the 50s, 60s. So, Mitchell Page, you're one-hit wonder for the athletics. 
Yeah, so you know, 1977 was the first year I followed baseball. I grew up in Seattle, so that was also the expansion year for the Mariners. So I definitely remembered Mitchell Page. As soon as I said, I'm going to do this project, I kind of knew that was going to be my A's guy. Um, you know, what a year. He was a rookie, hit 307, 21 homers, 75 ribbies, stole a bunch of bases. 6.1 war. I mean, he should have won Rookie of the Year. Eddie Murray won it, I believe, um, but it should have gone to Mitchell Page. And then, um, you know, he had some personal issues, you know, after that, the rest of his career, um, never lived up to that season. But, yeah, what a rookie year it was for Mitchell Page. Which was your favorite one that you did for all 30 teams? Oh, man, that's a good question. Uh, I need to scroll through here real quick. You know, my favorite part was kind of digging up some of the stories. Like, you remember Ron Kittle. He was Rookie of the Year with the White Sox in in 83. But his background, I had forgotten about this, was he was originally drafted by the Dodgers, um, broke his neck soon after being drafted, um, you know, like a cracked vertebrae, and um, didn't hit. The Dodgers released him. He thought his career was over. Um, finally, about a year later, the a doctor found out he had this cracked vertebrae and he had surgery, but he was told he would never play sports again. Went back just playing, you know, like in a semi-pro league, and a White Sox scout found him. <laughs> You know, playing amateur baseball, and a few years later he was in the majors and winning Rookie of the Year. So that's one of my favorites, you know, uh, those unusual stories like a Ron Kittle. You know, two of the guys on the list, you know, you think about their careers as not players. You have for the Padres, Cito Gaston, who, you know, won two World Series as the manager of the Blue Jays. And then also Dick Dietz, who I got to interview a few times, a long career in the front office for the San Francisco Giants. Yeah, I mean, Cito was was a classic one-year wonder. I think that was, what, 1970, early years with the Padres, made the all-star team. He stuck around eight or nine, ten years as a player, but only had one good year, and it was a total fluke year, one of the great fluke years as well. Um, yeah, Dick Dietz, you, you know more than about, about him than I do. <laughs> I mean, really, if you look at his stats in 2020, we'd be raving about this guy. He had power. He drew a ton of walks, um, so he had a high on-base percentage. But uh, from my research, he was kind of blackballed from the game. He was a player rep. The players went on strike in 72. The Giants, they didn't want him, so they kind of traded him to the Dodgers, and he was kind of a backup there for a couple years. But um, he had, you know, a couple really good years for the Giants. You know, there's some rumors circulating right now, and I saw this on NBC Sports. I guess there's this radio guy out of Chicago claiming that he's talked to some baseball executives that we could be looking at a hundred game season starting July 1st, which gives obviously April and May to figure this thing out. And hopefully we're on the downside of the curve of the coronavirus. Have you heard anything about this? Yeah, no, I, I, I don't know. I haven't, you know, been in touch with any MLB officials. Look, we don't know at this point because we don't know, you know, where we're at, honestly, in the midst of this virus. I think July is probably, I would say, 
optimistic, not overly optimistic, but I think that's like the the realistic, you know, time frame. You know, it's not a best case scenario. Certainly, it's not the worst case scenario, which is no season at all. I think that date becomes more realistic if we consider that maybe games are played in empty stadiums, you know, depending on where we're at with everything. Because um, they want that TV money. So if you get games on TV, you can start up earlier. And, and we've talked about this here on A's Cast Live about, you know, baseball is our national pastime. Obviously, it's been passed by football. But I do see in a safe environment, and I'm always going to say we got to make sure everybody's going to be safe. But if we talk about baseball being back on television when everybody's sitting at home, and you know, here in Northern California, we've been on lockdown for a while. What this would do for the sport, once again, because I think there's a lot of people out there who may not be baseball fans, but just to see live sports, <laughs> once again, would be so big for them and I think would really put baseball back into that category of our national pastime. So I want it to be safe, but wouldn't you agree getting baseball back on television, Dave, what, what that would mean for our country? Yeah, no, that's a really good point, and we're biased, right? I get it. We love baseball, but I think we have also learned more than ever that that day-to-day thing is what makes baseball so great. Even if it's just on in the background as we're cooking dinner or playing with the kids or the dog, um, it's always there. Once that season starts, it's a part of our lives for, for six months, more so than any other sport, because it is every day in nature. But, yeah, I think your point is terrific that maybe you do even bring in some non-regular or non-diehard fans who are desperate for something to do besides, you know, watching Netflix again. So, yeah, um, again, you got to balance that with doing the right thing. So that's sort of the, the concern that baseball has to face. Yeah, my joke is I can only watch Frozen 2 and play Monopoly so many times <laughs> before my, with my kids. Before I'm like, I know, I hear you, right? Yep. <laughs> I mean, these classic games, by the way, have saved a lot of us. I mean, it's been a lot of fun, you know, going back and whether it was, you know, my favorite player of all time, George Brett. I recently saw that on MLB.com when he dominated the Blue Jays in 1985 or the, the Bucky Dent game, and then there was that – crazy game between the, the Phillies and the, the Cubs was at 23 right. to 22. It's been yep. a lot of fun watching these old games. And it just makes me think about changes in the game. If you're ever going to do changes, this would kind of be the year. If you want to like, kind of, I don't know, try something out. If you could try something out in this season for you, what would it be? Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I saw Justin Turner of the Dodgers. What did he just suggest? That let's decide extra inning games with, with a home run derby, kind of akin to the shootout in hockey. I actually, and he said just for this year, I think that's kind of a fun idea. Um, I, I know it's against everything the traditionalists stand for, but, you know, it's all about fun. You know, hey, if you can't win a game in nine innings, you know, okay then it, why not make it a little bit of a crapshoot? Um, but one idea I like is trying something different in the playoffs. And I know they've already, you know, at the start of the year, they've thrown out some, you know, proposals for a new playoff format. But maybe this year, how about eight teams make the playoffs in each league and you run each 
league, like a college world series, double elimination bracket, you know, so you have a winner in each league and then you play a traditional best of seven world series, but maybe that's a way to kind of, you know, have a little twist and turn in the postseason. Well, two things on that first. Yep. My, my, my producer Cody came up with that idea a while back and we were like thinking about the, the home run derby type thing to finish an extra innings game. And like, if you threw out on Twitter, so let's take the A's and the angels. If you threw out on Twitter that Mike Trout and Matt Chapman are going to go one-on-one <laughs> in home run, you know how many people would get on MLB.com and, 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 and go to watch Matt Chapman against Mike. And I'm just obviously selfishly using us, but you can put, uh, you know, any great players and put them in there, but Mike Trout against Matt Chapman, you try to tell me people wouldn't tune in for that. Yeah. I mean, look, I, there's no doubt from an entertainment factor I mean, it's a no-brainer, and I know, you know, I work at ESPN. We televise the Home Run Derby every summer, and I know that's not for everybody, but the kids absolutely love it. Um, so I get it, you know, it's it, it hurts teams that aren't built around power, you know, but, hey, again, this whole year is already going to be different. Why not try it the rest of the season once we kick off? Doesn't mean you have to keep it for 2021. Do it. See how people feel about it. Yeah, and then the second part of that is we've seen it with the World Baseball Classic. If you're going to play games later in the year, you can do neutral sites. The weather's going to be good in L.A. and Anaheim. So you got Dodger Stadium. You you got Angel Stadium. Obviously, the weather will be good in San Diego at Petco Park. Traditionally, our weather is good up here in Northern California in the fall for Oakland and San Francisco. Then we now have two roofs in Texas as you have the retractable roof there in Houston, and you'll have the same thing now with the ballpark in Arlington. So there will be places to play if you want to extend stuff into November when you start talking about postseason. We see it with college football. We see it with the Super Bowl. I just think people are going to be starving for entertainment at that point. That do you think neutral sites could work? Yeah, I mean, this is, Scott Boris has been trying to get this <laughs> proposal for years. You know, where you can plan it ahead of time and have all the parties like you do. You know, during Super Bowl week. Um, I have mixed opinions. I would worry that yeah, you're playing a World Series game in in Houston and there's ten thousand people because it's you know, the Twins and the Cubs or something like that. But then again, I think maybe the home fans would travel to the neutral site. Again, this year, travel, you know, who knows, right? But, um, again, maybe it's worth trying, you know. Um, what do you have to lose? I get it. If you're if you're the Cleveland Indians you're and you're back in the World Series and you haven't won since 1948, you want those games at home, but – a World Series game in Cleveland in the middle of November, you know, there could be two feet of snow on the ground. <laughs> yeah, that that's not going to work, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's not, that is not going to be good. And, and one question that I think is on a lot of people's minds is the Houston Astros. And we, I have a feeling the Houston Astros, they're going to be, they're going to be handled a little bit differently now because whenever we have these type of tragedies go on, we all want to kind of bond together and we're a little bit softer. But I'm wondering on the suspensions of Jeffrey Luno and A.J. Hinch. 
you can already I'm already seeing it now in our neck of the woods. People are like, wait a minute. You're telling me if we don't play baseball, their suspensions will just be done after the end of this year. If there's no year, baseball is going to have to really look into this because if there isn't a whole lot of baseball and these guys really don't get the punishment, that's not going to be a good look. Do you think the commissioner is going to look back into this? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. You know, the I, I'm with you. The public pressure is going to be um, they didn't serve, they didn't serve enough of that punishment. Um, depending on when we get back in action here, um, I don't know if there's legal matters in here. The thing is, those guys they're not represented by a union. You know, like like the players are. You know, a, a, a similar situation with players would be you know fought by the union. Hinch, Lunau, they don't have that. Um, so the commissioner, I would guess, would have the prerogative to uh, add another year or another six months or whatever. Um, but again, I don't know. We all want to get the games back, you know, and I think the commissioner, he wants this Houston thing to go away. He doesn't want to string it out. So I don't know. If I had to guess, I think they'll be eligible to be hired again in 2021. All right, let's end on this. You're sitting at home and you're thinking of things to do for ESPN.com, which does a great job covering our game of baseball. As we talk about your articles all the time, what's the next thing for you? What's the next? (laughs) What are you thinking about covering next? Well, you know, you hate to make everything sort of historical in nature, but I'm working on another big project. This is my most hyped prospect for every team um, in franchise history, which skews more towards the last 20 years. You know, uh, we pay a lot more attention to prospects now than, than we used to. Um, so this, again, it's more telling some of the interesting stories. Some of these guys are big names, obviously, Bryce Harper, Ken Griffey Jr., but there's some other guys that when you look back, were very hyped and didn't pan out for, for whatever reason. So, uh, so that's for next week. And I'm already like 5,000 words into it, and I'm not done. So my, my editors are not going to like it when I file this piece. <laughs> well, I, I, I can tell you this. For about two years doing the postgame show, all I heard was Chris Carter and Michael Choice. And A's fans clamoring for these guys. Michael Choice, Chris Carter, you got to bring him up. These guys are going to be the greatest guys ever. So it, it leads me to what I always say. You're a suspect until you come to the big leagues. You want to call him a prospect. I call him a suspect until you come to the big leagues and prove you can play at this level. Well, that's the thing about baseball. You know, you can be the number one pick or, you know, my A's guy for this list. You'll remember Todd Van Poppel, who wasn't the first pick in the draft only because of his bonus demands, but he quickly became the number one prospect in baseball for for a year or two and he made the majors and he ended up sticking around a while but obviously never lived up to the hype and as you know baseball is hard there are no guarantees for every griffey or a rod or harper there's other number one prospects that that you know fell well short of all-star status or hall of fame status it's it's hard but that's the fun you never know you got to prove yourself on the field you know, I'll never forget, I think it was Sports Illustrated had that article about Todd Van Pavel. He's undefeated. He can't be beat in high school. He's the greatest pitcher of all time. He's the next Nolan Ryan. 
Yeah, and there's a lot of, you know, especially pitchers, a lot of the guys get hurt, like a Mark Pryor, um, Van Poppel. I don't think that was the case with him. I just don't think he ever, you know, um, you know, lived up, up to what he was in high school. That's what happened. Some Some players... You know, they're throwing 98, 99, 100 when they're 18 or 19, and then they lose the fastball, and they're never the same. Um, some obviously do get hurt. But that's the fun because sometimes they do turn into A-Rod or Griffey. Well, I got to tell you, we truly appreciate you coming on. I think for for what you're doing at ESPN.com and what we're doing here with A's Cast Live is we're just trying to be a distraction from all the, the tough news that's going on there. So keep doing your great work. We'll keep reading you. We'll keep promoting everything you're doing. And thank you for the time. And be safe, and we'll talk soon. All right. You too. Keep talking baseball. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. 